Part Seven, Chapter Thirteen of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel. There are no imaginable conditions to which a man cannot accustom himself, especially if he sees that all those who surround him are living in the same way. Three months before, Levin would not have believed that he could have slept tranquilly under the conditions in which he found himself at the present time that living an aimless, unprofitable life, spending more than his income, getting tipsy, for he could not call his experience at the club anything else, his absurd intimacy with a man with whom his wife had once been in love, and his still more absurd visit to a woman whom it was impossible to regard as respectable, and after the fascination which she had exerted over him and the mortification which he had caused his wife, that under all these conditions he could sleep serenely but under the influence of his weariness, the long hours without a nap, and the wine which he had drunk, he slept soundly and serenely. At five o'clock the noise of an opening door wakened him. He sat up and looked around. Kitty was not in bed next to him, but behind the screen there was a light moving, and he heard her steps. "'What's the matter?' he asked, still only half awake. "'Kitty, what is it?' "'Nothing.' answered she, coming from behind the screen with a candle in her hand, and smiling at him with a peculiarly sweet and significant smile. I don't feel quite well. What? Is this the beginning? Must we send? he exclaimed in alarm, and he began to dress as quickly as possible. No, no, said she, smiling and holding his hand. It's nothing. I did not feel quite well. It's all right now. Going back to bed, she put out the light and lay down again, keeping perfectly still, although her very stillness, and the way she, as it were, held her breath, were suspicious, and still more so the expression of peculiar tenderness and alertness with which, as she came out from behind the screen, she said to him, "'It's nothing.' Still, he was so overcome by drowsiness that he immediately went to sleep again. It was only afterward that he realized the calmness of her spirit, and appreciated all that was passing in her dear, gentle heart, as she lay thus motionless near him, awaiting the most solemn moment of a woman's life. About seven o'clock he was awakened by her hand touching his shoulder, and her low whisper. She apparently hesitated between the fear of waking him and the wish to speak to him. "'Kostya, don't be afraid. It's nothing. But I think—Lizaveta Petrovna had better be called.' The candle was again lighted. She was sitting on the bed— holding the knitting on which she had been at work during the last few days. "'Please don't be alarmed. I'm not in the least afraid,' said she, seeing her husband's terrified face, and she pressed his hand to her breast, then to her lips. Levin leapt from the bed and, unconscious of himself, without taking his eyes off his wife for a moment, hurried on his dressing-gown. It was necessary for him to go, but he could not tear himself away. Dearly as he loved her face— as well as he knew her expression, her eyes, yet never before had he seen her look as she did then. How ugly and horrible did he now seem, as he saw her now, and remembered the mortification which he had caused her the evening before. Her flushed face, with the clustering soft curls escaping from under her nightcap, was radiant with joy and resolution. Natural and simple as Kitty's character in general was, Levin was amazed by what unfolded itself before him now, when suddenly all the curtains were withdrawn, 
and the very essence of her soul shone in her eyes. And in this simplicity and revelation, she, her very self, whom he loved, was more apparent than ever. She looked at him and smiled, but suddenly her brows contracted. She lifted her head and, coming to him, took his hand and clung to him, sighing painfully. She suffered, and yet she seemed to pity him for her sufferings. At first, as he saw this silent suffering, it seemed to him that he was to blame for it, but in her look there was tenderness which told him that she not only did not blame him, but that she loved him all the more for her suffering. "'If not I, who, then, is to blame for this?' he asked himself. She suffered, and she seemed to take pride in her pain, and to rejoice in it. He saw that in her soul some beautiful transformation was taking place. But what? He could not understand. It was above his comprehension. "'I have sent for Mamma. Now go quickly, and get Lizaveta Petrovna. Kostya, it's nothing. It's all over.' She went to the other side of the room and rang the bell. "'There, now. Please go. Pasha is coming. I want nothing.' And Levin, with astonishment, saw her take up her work again. As he went out of one door, he heard Pasha, the maid, come in at the other. He paused on the threshold and listened as Kitty gave directions for arranging the room, and as she herself began to move the bed. He dressed, and when he had ordered his carriage, since it was too early for Izvazchik's, he flew up to her room again, not on tiptoes, but on wings, as it seemed to him. Two maids were busily engaged in moving something in the room. Kitty was walking up and down, knitting swiftly, slipping the knots, and giving directions. "'I'm going for the doctor immediately. Lizaveta Petrovna has been sent for, but I will call there. There is nothing more, is there?' "'Oh, yes, Dolly.' She looked at him, evidently without hearing what he said. "'Yes, yes, go,' said she, and motioned to him with her hand. He was just passing through the drawing-room when he heard a groan, pitiful but instantly suppressed. He stood still, and could not make up his mind. "'It is she,' he said to himself, and, putting his hands to his head, he rushed out. "'Lord, have mercy on us!' pardon us, save us, he exclaimed, and these words, which suddenly and unexpectedly came to his lips, were not spoken merely by his lips, unbeliever though he was. Now at this instant he knew perfectly well that all his doubts and the impossibility which his reason found in belief had not the slightest influence to prevent him from addressing himself to God. Everything of this sort now vanished like dust from his soul. To whom could he address himself? if not to him, in whose hands he felt were held himself, and his soul, and his love. The horse was not yet ready, but, feeling the special strain of physical powers unemployed, and of the work before him calling for his attention, he started on foot, so as not to lose a single instant, and ordered Kuzma to follow him. At the corner of the street he met a knight Izvazchik hurrying along. In the little sledge sat Lizaveta Petrovna, in velvet cloak, with her head wrapped up in a kerchief. "'Thank God!' he murmured, as he saw with joy her pale little face, which had a peculiarly serious, and even stern, expression. Not ordering the driver to stop, he ran along with it back to the house. "'Only two hours, not more,' asked Zvieta Petrovna. "'You may speak to Pyotr Dmitrich, 
but don't hurry him. Yes, please get some opium at the apothecary's. Do you think all will go on well? asked he. God help us, he added, as he saw his horse starting from the door. He got into the sledge alongside of Kuzma, and ordered him to hurry to the doctor's. End of chapter 13「Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Part 7, Chapter 14 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy. Translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel. The doctor was not yet up, and a servant, who was busy cleaning the lamps, announced that his master had gone to bed late, and had given orders not to be waked, but would be up before long. The lackey was polishing lamp-chimneys, and seemed very much absorbed in this occupation. At first this absorption of the lackey in his lamp-chimneys, and his indifference to what was going on at home, made Levin indignant. But on reflection he realized that no one knew anything about it, or was obliged to share in his feelings, and that consequently it was incumbent on him to be calm, reasonable, and firm, so as to break down that wall of indifference, and attain his end. "'I must not spoil matters by haste,' said Levin to himself, feeling all the time a growing intensity of physical energy and concentration on what was before him. Now that he knew that the doctor was not up, and had given orders not to be disturbed, Levin thought over several plans which presented themselves to him, and finally decided on the following, to send Kuzma with a note to another doctor, to go himself to the apothecaries for the laudanum, and, if on his return the doctor was not up, then either by bribery or by main force, if the man would not consent, to waken the doctor at any cost. At the apothecaries the lean clerk, with the same indifference as the lackey cleaning the lamp-chimneys had shown, put a seal on the powders for the waiting coachman, and refused to deliver the opium. Striving not to get impatient or angry, and mentioning the doctor and the midwife by name, and telling what it was needed for, Levin pleaded with him. The clerk asked his employer in German if it should be permitted, and, receiving a favorable reply from behind the screen, he proceeded to get out the bottle and a funnel, and slowly poured the liquid from it into a smaller vial, pasted it on a label, sealed it, and, in spite of Levin's urgency not to do so, was even going to wrap it up. This Levin could not endure. He resolutely snatched the vial out of the clerk's hands, and rushed through the great glass doors. The doctor was still asleep, and, this time, the servant was shaking the rugs. Levin, leisurely getting from his pocket a ten-rouble note, and dwelling on his words, but not wasting time, gave him the money, and explained that Pyotr Dmitrievich, how great and significant now seemed this hitherto unimportant Pyotr Dmitrievich, had promised him to be on hand at any time, so that he would certainly not be angry, and that, therefore, he must instantly awaken him. The lackey consented, and went upstairs, and showed Levin into the reception-room. Levin could hear in the next room how the doctor coughed, or walked about, washed his face and hands, and made some remarks. 
Three minutes passed. It seemed to Levin that it was more than an hour. He could no longer contain himself. Pyotr Dmitrievich! Pyotr Dmitrievich! he cried through the opened door, in a beseeching voice. For God's sake, forgive me. Let me come in just as you are. It's been more than two hours now. I'll be out immediately, replied a voice, and Levin, to his surprise, knew by the sound of the doctor's voice that he was smiling as he spoke. Just for one little minute. I'll be out immediately. Two minutes more went by while the doctor was putting on his boots, and another two minutes while he was brushing his hair and putting on his coat. Pyotr Dmitrievich, Levin was saying once more, but at that instant the doctor came in, already dressed and with his hair brushed. These people have no hearts, thought Levin. He can brush his hair while we are dying. Good morning, said the doctor, entering the reception room serenely and offering to shake hands. I don't feel anxious. Well, how is it? Levin began at once a long and circumstantial account, filled with a crowd of useless details, and interrupted himself at every moment to urge the doctor to set out. Yes, but you must not be anxious. You see, you don't know. I'm really not in need yet. Still, I have promised, and I assure you I'll go. But there's no hurry. Please sit down. Won't you have some coffee? Levin looked at him with a questioning look, asking with his eyes if he were not laughing at him, but the doctor was in serious earnest. I know, I know, added the physician, smiling. I myself am a family man, and we husbands cut a sorry figure in such cases. The husband of one of my patients always, on such occasion, goes off to the stable. But do you think, Pyotr Dmitrievich, do you think she'll get on well? All the indications point to a fortunate issue. Won't you come at once? said Levin, looking with angry eyes at the servant who was bringing in the coffee. Within an hour. For God's sake! Well, let me take my coffee. The doctor proceeded to take his breakfast. Both were silent. It seems the Turks are beating. Did you read the telegram last evening? asked the doctor, biting into a roll. No, but I'm going, said Levin. Will you come in a quarter of an hour? Make it a half. On your honor. When Levin got home, he found the princess at the door, and they went to Kitty's room together. The princess had tears in her eyes, and her hands trembled. When she saw Levin, she threw her arms round him and kissed him. "'How is it, Lizaveta Petrovna, dearie?' said she, seizing the midwife's hand as she came to meet them with a radiant but solicitous face. "'It is going well,' said she. "'It would be well for her to lie down. Try to persuade her. She would find it easier.' Ever since Levin, on waking, had understood the situation, he had made up his mind, without indulging in anxious thought or forebodings, crushing down all his anxieties and feelings, firmly, without worrying his wife, but, on the contrary, calming her and sustaining her courage, that he would endure what was before him. Not allowing himself even to think of what was coming or how it might end, judging by answers to his questions, how long it generally lasted, Levin, in his imagination, prepared to have patience and hold his heart in his hands for five hours, and this seemed to him within the limit of possibility. But when he returned after his visit to the doctor's, and found Kitty still suffering, again he cried more and more frequently, Lord, forgive us, and be merciful. And he was afraid that he could not endure it, so terrible was it to him. 
Thus an hour went by. And after this another hour passed, and a second, and a third, and the five which he had set as the very ultimate limit of his endurance. And the situation was still the same, and still he was enduring the suspense, because there was nothing else to do except endure. Thinking every moment that he had reached the last limit, and that his heart would burst with his agony. But the minutes still went by, hours and hours, and his feelings of agony and horror kept growing worse and more unendurable. All the ordinary conditions of life, without which it is impossible to take cognizance of anything, ceased to exist for Levin. He lost all consciousness of time. Now the minutes when she called him to her, and he held her moist hand, which at one time would press his with extraordinary force, and again push him away, seemed hours. Then again the hours would seem to him minutes. He was surprised when Lizaveta Petrovna asked for a light, and he learned that it was five o'clock in the evening. If they had told him that it was only ten o'clock in the morning, he would have been just as much surprised. Where the time had gone, what he had done, where he had been, he could not have told. Sometimes he saw Kitty's flushed face, now troubled and piteous, then calm and almost smiling, as she tried to reassure him. Then he saw the princess, flushed with anxiety, her grey curls in disorder, swallowing down her tears and biting her lips to keep from crying. He had also seen Dolly, and the doctor smoking great cigarettes, and the Zavieta Petrovna, with a calm, serious, but reassuring look, and the old prince, pacing the dining-room with a frowning face. But how they came and went, and where they had been, he could not tell. The princess had been with the doctor in Kitty's room, then in the library, where a well-set table had appeared, then she disappeared, and Dolly was in her place. Then Levin remembered that they sent him somewhere. He moved a divan and a table zealously, thinking it was for her sake, and only when it was done did he learn that they were preparing his own bed for the night. He was sent to the library to ask the doctor something. The doctor replied, and then began to speak of the disorders of the Duma, or town council. Then they sent him to the princess's bedchamber, to get a holy image made of silver, with a gold trimming, from there, and, with the aid of an old chambermaid of the princess's, he climbed up to get it from the cabinet, and, in doing so, broke a little lamp, and the old woman consoled him for this accident, and encouraged him about his wife. And he had carried the image to Kitty, and placed it at her head, carefully arranging it behind her pillow. But where, when, and why all this was done, was more than he could tell. Neither did he comprehend why the old princess took him by the hand, and, looking at him compassionately, begged him to calm himself, or why Dolly tried to persuade him to eat something, and led him from the room or why even the doctor looked at him gravely and sympathetically, and offered him a pill. He knew and felt conscious only that what was occurring was like that which had occurred the year before at the hotel of the government city, by the deathbed of his brother Nikolai. That was grief, this was happiness. But that grief and this happiness were in the same way outside of the ordinary conditions of life, were in this peculiar life, as it were, the loopholes through which appeared something higher, and in exactly the same way, while the hard, painful event was accomplishing before him, in exactly the same way incomprehensible, his soul, at the contemplation of this loftiness, raised itself to a height which he had never before dreamed possible, and whither his reason could not follow. 
Lord, have mercy and aid us, he kept repeating, in spite of his long lack of practice, and yet feeling that he was addressing God with the same simplicity, the same confidence, as in his childhood and early youth. All this time he seemed to be leading two separate existences. One was away from Kitty, with the doctor smoking one fat cigarette after another, and knocking the ashes off against the rim of the unemptied ash-tray, or with Dolly and the old princess, who insisted on talking about dinner, a politics, or the illness of Maria Petrovna, and with whom Levin suddenly, for an instant, would forget entirely what was taking place, and feel wide awake. And the other was in her presence, by her bedside, where his heart felt as if it would burst, and it almost did break with compassion, and where he did not cease to pray to God. And every time, when he would be aroused from momentary oblivion by a cry coming from her chamber, he would fall under the same strange delusion as had at the first moment taken possession of him. Every time he heard the cry, he would spring to his feet, hasten to her room, and on the way remember that he was not to blame, and would long to protect and help. And as he looked on her, he would see that there was no help to be given her, and again the pity would seize him, and he would pray, Lord, forgive and help us. And in proportion as the time passed by, the stronger became the two conditions of mind. He would be calmer at one moment, perfectly oblivious of her, while remaining out of her presence, and then again the more painful would become his sympathetic torments and the feeling of helplessness before them. He would spring to his feet, feel the impulse to escape somewhere, and hasten to her. Sometimes when she would keep calling for him he would reproach her, but, seeing her submissive, smiling face, and hearing her words, I have tired you out, he would reproach God. But, remembering what God was, he would beg for pardon and aid. End of chapter 14「Part seven, Chapter fifteen of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This Slippervox recording is in the public domain, read by Marianne Spiegel. He did not know whether it was late or early. The candles had already burned down. Dolly had just come into the library and was proposing to the doctor to lie down. Levin had been sitting there listening to the doctor's story of the charlatanry of magnetizers and looking at the ash at the end of his cigarette. It was one of the moments of rest, and he was oblivious. He had entirely forgotten what was taking place. He listened to the doctor, and followed him understandingly. Suddenly he heard a cry unlike anything he had ever heard. The cry was so terrible that Levin did not even stir, but, holding his breath, he looked at the doctor with eyes full of questioning terror. The doctor bent his head, as if to hear better, and smiled with an air of approbation. Levin had reached the point where nothing could surprise him, and he said inwardly, "'Evidently that must be so. But why that cry?' He went back to the sick-room on tiptoe, passed round by Lizaveta Petrovna and the princess, and stood in his place by the bedside. The cry had ceased, but evidently there was some change. What he did not know, and did not care to know, but he saw it by the grave expression of Lizaveta Petrovna's pale face. Her face was stern and pale, and just as resolute as ever, although her lower jaw trembled a little. Her eyes were kept steadily fixed on Kitty. Her flushed, tortured face, with the little tufts of hair clinging to it, 
was turned toward him, and her eyes sought his. She raised her hand and tried to take his. When once she got hold of it, she tried with her moist hands to press it to her forehead. "'Don't go. Don't go. I'm not afraid,' said she quickly. "'Mama, take away my earrings. They annoy me. You aren't afraid?' Lizaveta Petrovna, quick, quick!' she spoke rapidly, and tried to smile, but suddenly her face grew convulsed, and she pushed him away. "'This is terrible. I shall die. I shall die. Go. Go!' Then came the same unearthly cry. Levin seized his head in his hands and rushed from the room. "'That is nothing. All is going well,' said Dolly, following after him. But, whatever they might say, he knew that now all was lost. Leaning his head against the lintel, he stood in the adjoining room, and listened to screams and moaning, such sounds as he had never heard before, and he knew that what was making such animal-like noise was she who had once been Kitty. He had long ceased to care about the child. He now hated that child. He went so far as to not wish for Kitty to live, provided only her horrible agonies might be ended. "'Doctor, what does that mean? My God!' he said, seizing the doctor's arm as he went in. "'It is the end,' replied the doctor, and his face was so serious, as he said this, that Levin thought he meant that Kitty was dead." Not knowing what would become of him, he went back to the bedroom. What he first saw was Lizaveta Petrovna's face. It was even more than before pretentious and stern. It was no longer Kitty's face that was there. In the place where it had been before, there was something terrible, both by reason of the agony which contracted it, and by reason of the sound that came from it. He bowed his head against the wooden frame of the bed, feeling that his heart would burst. The awful shriek still continued. It grew more piercing than ever, as if the last limit of horror had been reached. Then suddenly the shriek ceased. He could not believe it, but he could not doubt. And he heard a gentle rustling and a quick breathing, and his wife's living, loving, happy voice whispered, Konechna, it's over. He raised his head. As she lay there, beautiful with a supernatural beauty, with her arms nervelessly resting on the counterpane, she looked at him, and tried to smile at him, but could not. Coming suddenly out of that mysterious and terrible world where he had been living for twenty-two hours, Levin felt himself transported back into his ordinary, everyday world of luminous happiness, and he could not bear it. The cord's long tense snapped. He burst into tears, and the sobs of joy which he could not foresee shook his whole body so violently that he could not speak. He knelt beside Kitty, and pressed his lips on her hand, and her gentle fingers answered his caress, and meantime, at the foot of the bed, in the skilful hands of Lizaveta Petrovna, like the small uncertain flame of a lamp, flickered the life of a human being, which just before had not been, and which, with every right and every responsibility, would live and propagate its kind. "'He lives! He lives! Yes! It is a boy! Don't be worried!' Levin heard Lizaveta's voice saying, while with a trembling hand she slapped the little one's back. "'Mama, is it true?' asked Kitty, and the princess's sobs answered her. And amid the silence, like an indutable answer to the young mother's questions, was heard a voice, absolutely different from the subdued voices speaking in the room. 
It was the bold, decided, imperious, almost impertinent cry of the new human being, which had come whence no one knew. Just before, if Levin had been told that Kitty was dead, that he himself had died with her, and that their children were angels, and that they were all in the presence of God, he would not have been surprised. And now that he had come back to reality, it took a prodigious effort of thought to comprehend that his wife was alive, that she was doing well, and that this desperately screeching creature was his son. Kitty was saved, her suffering was past, and he was inexpressibly happy. That he could understand, and it made him happy. But the child! Whence? Why? What was it? He could not want himself to the thought of it. It seemed to him somehow too much, too overwhelming, and it was long before he became accustomed to it. End of chapter 15part 7 chapter 16 of anna karenina by leo tolstoy translated by nathan haskell doyle this LibriVox recording is in the public domain read by marianne spiegel the old prince sergey ivanovitch and stefan arkadyevitch met at levin's the next morning about 10 o'clock and after they talked about the little mother they began to converse about irrelevant topics levin listened to them and involuntarily remembering what had taken place what had been going on that morning, he also remembered what he himself had been but a few hours before. It was as if a hundred years had passed since then. He felt that he was on some unattainable height from which he endeavoured to descend to their level, that he might not offend those with whom he was talking. While talking about indifferent things, he was thinking of his wife, of the state of her health, and of his son, to the idea of whose existence he was trying to accustom himself. The whole world of womanhood, which had taken on a new and incomprehensible significance to him, even after his marriage, occupied such a lofty place that he could not begin to realize it. He heard the men talking about their dinner at the club, but he was thinking, What is she doing now? Is she asleep? How is she? What is in her mind? Is the son Dmitri crying? And, in the midst of the conversation, in the midst of a sentence, he sprang up and left the room. "'Send word down, if I may see her,' said the old prince. "'Very good. I will at once,' replied Levin, and without pausing he went to her room. She was not asleep, but was softly talking with her mother, making plans about the christening. With clean clothes and with her hair brushed, she lay comfortably arranged in bed, with her hands resting on the counterpane, and a mob cap with blue ribbons on her head, and as her eyes met his, she drew him to her by their look. Her face lighted up more and more brightly as he approached her. There was in it that change from the earthly to the superhuman calm which one sees in death, but, instead of a farewell, she welcomed him to a new life. Again an emotion, like that which he had felt during her agony, seized his heart. She took his hand and asked him if he had slept. He could not answer, but turned his head away, yielding to his weakness. "'I have had a nap, Kostya,' she said, "'and I feel so well now.' She looked at him, and suddenly the expression of her face changed. She heard her baby cry. "'Give him to me, Zavieta Petrovna, and let me show him to his father,' she said. "'There, now, let Papa look,' 
said Lizaveta Petrovna, taking up and exhibiting something red, strange, and wobbling. Wait, we must change it first. And Lizaveta Petrovna deposited this red, wobbling something on the bed, and proceeded to unswathe it, and then swathe it again, lifting and turning it over with one finger, and shaking some kind of powder over it. Levin, as he looked at the poor little bit of humanity, tried in vain to discover within his soul some paternal sentiments toward it. His only feeling was one of repulsion. But when they took off its things, and he saw its tiny delicate arms and legs, still saffron-colored, and its still tinier fingers, and even a thumb differentiated from the others, and when he saw Lizaveta Petrovna handling its little, waving arms, just as if they were delicate springs, and putting them into linen garments, such pity seized him, and such terror lest she should hurt it, that he made a gesture to stop her. Lizaveta Petrovna laughed. "'Never fear, never fear,' said she. When the child was dressed, and metamorphosed into a regular doll, Lizaveta Petrovna tossed him up and down, as if proud of her work, and held him off so that Levin might see his son in all his beauty. Kitty, not taking her eyes from him, was alarmed. "'Give him to me! Give him to me!' she cried, and she even lifted herself up. "'But, Katerina Alexandrovna, you must know that any such motions are forbidden. Be patient. I will give him to you. But we must let Papasha see what a fine young man we are.' And Lizaveta Petrovna handed to Levin with one hand, the other supported the limp occupant, this strange, weak, red creature, whose head fell limply in its swaddling clothes. All that was to be seen of it was a nose, a pair of eyes that looked in two directions, and smacking lips. Prokrasnui Rabionik, a splendid baby, said Lizaveta Petrovna. Levin drew a deep breath of mortification. This splendid baby inspired him only with a feeling of pity and disgust. It was not at all the feeling that he expected. He turned away while the nurse placed it in Kitty's arms. Suddenly a laugh caused him to raise his head. It was Kitty who laughed. The baby had taken the breast. "'There, that's enough. That's enough,' said Lizaveta Petrovna. But Kitty would not let go of her son, who had gone to sleep on her arm. "'Look at him now,' said she, turning the child so that his father might see him. The little old face suddenly grew still more wrinkled, and the child sneezed. Levin, smiling and hardly able to restrain his tears of tenderness, kissed his wife and left the room. The feelings which this little being awakened in him were entirely different from what he had expected. There was neither pride nor joy in the feeling, but rather a new and painful fear. It was the consciousness that he had become vulnerable in a new way, and this consciousness at first was so acute, his fear lest this poor, defenseless creature might suffer was so poignant, that it drowned the strange feeling of thoughtless joy, and even pride, that rose in his heart when the infant sneezed. End of chapter 16「Seven, Chapter Seventeen of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. The Slippervox recording is in the public domain, read by Marianne Spiegel. The affairs of Stefan Arkadyevitch had reached a critical stage. The money brought by the sale of two-thirds of the timber had long ago been spent, and he had obtained from the merchant at a discount of ten percent 
a large part of the remaining third in advance. Now the merchant would not advance anything more, as Dolly, for the first time in her life asserting her rights to her personal property, had refused her signature to the contract when it was proposed to give a receipt for the sale of the last third of the wood. All the salary was used up for household expenses, and for the payment of unavoidable debts. There was absolutely no money to be had. It was disagreeable and awkward, and Stefan Arkadyevitch felt that it was not to be continued. The reason of it, in his opinion, lay in the fact that he got too small a salary. The place which he held had been very good five years before, but it was so no longer. Petrov, the director of a bank, got twelve thousand. Svintitsky, a member of the council, got seventeen thousand. Mitten, the head of a bank, got fifty thousand. "'Apparently I have been asleep, and they have forgotten me,' said Stefan Arkadyevitch to himself, and he began to keep his eyes and ears open, and at the end of the winter he discovered a very good place, and matured his attack upon it, beginning at Moscow through his uncles, his aunts, and his friends, and then, when the time seemed ripe in the spring, he himself went down to Petersburg. It was one of those lucrative, sinecure places, which nowadays are found, varying in importance, worth anything from one thousand to fifty thousand roubles a year. This place was in the commission of the Consolidated Agency for the Mutual Credit Balance of the Southern Railway and Banking Establishments. The place, like all such places, required at once such varied talents and such extraordinary activity that it was hard to find them united in one person. But since it was hopeless to find any one with all these qualities, it was certainly better that the man put in should be an honest rather than a dishonest man. Now Stefan Arkadyevitch was an honest man in every sense of the term, for in Moscow the word chesnui, meaning honest, has two significations, depending on its accent. They speak of an honest agent, an honest writer, an honest journal, an honest institution, and it means not only that men or institutions are not dishonest, but that they know how to adapt themselves to circumstances. Stefan Arkadyevitch belonged in Moscow to that class of people who used that convenient word, and, as he passed for honest, he therefore felt that he had a better right than anyone else to that place. This place was worth from 7,000 to 10,000 roubles a year, and Oblonsky could accept this position and not resign his present duties. Everything depended on two ministers, a lady, and two Jews, and, although they were ready to grant what he wished, he had to go to Petersburg to solicit their aid. Moreover, he faithfully promised Anna that he would obtain from Karenin a decisive answer about the divorce, and, having extorted fifty roubles from Dolly, he set out for Petersburg. Sitting in Karenin's library, and listening to his exposition of a project for reforming the status of Russian finance, Stefan Arkadyevitch waited as patiently as he could till he might put in a word about his personal affairs and about Anna. "'Yes, that is very true,' said he, when Alexey Alexandrovitch took off the pince-nez, without which he could not read now, and looked inquiringly at his brother-in-law. "'That is very true in detail, but nevertheless the leading principle of our age is liberty.' "'Yes, but I advocate another principle which embraces freedom.' replied Alexey Alexandrovitch, accenting the word embraces, and putting on his pince-nez to read over the passage where he had said that very thing. And, turning over the pages of his elegantly written manuscript, 
with its wide margins, he again read the concluding paragraph. For if I sustain the protectionist system, it is not for the advantage of private individuals, but for the general good, for all classes alike, both low and high, and it is that which they will not understand, added he, looking over his pince-nez at Oblonsky, absorbed as they are in their personal interests, and so easily satisfied with phrases. Stepan Arkadyevitch knew that when Karenin began to speak of what was said and done by those who were opposed to his views, and who were the source of all evil in Russia, he was nearing the end, and so he willingly renounced his principle of liberty, and agreed with him. Alexey Alexandrovitch came to a pause, and turned over the leaves of his manuscript with a thoughtful air. "'Oh, by the way,' said Stepan Arkadyevitch, "'I wanted to ask you, in case you should meet Pomorsky, to say a little word to him for me, that I should very much like to be appointed a member of the Commission of the Combined Agencies of the Mutual Credit Balance of the Railways of the South. To Stepan Arkadyevitch the name of this position, which was so dear to his heart, was already very familiar, and he could rattle it off with great rapidity and without making a mistake. Alexey Alexandrovitch asked what the functions of this new commission were to be, and then he reflected. It seemed to him that the existence of this commission was directly opposed to his projects of reform. But as the operations of this commission were very complicated, and his own projects of reform occupied a very vast field, he felt that he could not settle this question at a glance, and, taking off his pince-nez, said, "'Without doubt I could speak to him. But why are you especially desirous to have this place?' "'The salary is good, nine thousand roubles, and my means.' Nine thousand roubles,' repeated Alexey Alexandrovitch, and he frowned. The high emolument of this position reminded him that Stefan Arkadyevitch's superstitious function was directly opposed to the principal feature of his projects, which always inclined to economy. "'I believe, and I show in my pamphlet, that in our day these enormous salaries are the signs of the defectiveness of the economic ascete of our administration.' "'Yes, but what would you have?' said Stefan Arkadyevitch. "'Now let us see. A bank director gets ten thousand.' he is worth it, or an engineer gets twenty thousand. These are no sinecures. I pine that salaries are payment for merchandise, and ought to be subject to the law of supply and demand. If salaries are not subject to this law, if, for example, I see two engineers of equal capacity, having pursued the same studies at the Institute, one receiving forty thousand rubles, while the other contents himself with two thousand, or if I see a hussar, who has no special knowledge, become director of a bank with a phenomenal salary, I conclude that these salaries are fixed, not in accordance with the law of supply and demand, but by sheer partiality. And so, here is an abuse, great in itself, and disastrous in its influence on the imperial service. I opine. Stefan Arkadyevitch made haste to interrupt his brother-in-law. Yes, but you will agree that a new and undoubtedly useful institution has been opened, it's a live thing, and it is certainly worth while to have it conducted honestly, said Stepan Arkadyevitch, emphasizing the adjective. But the Muscovite signification of the adjective had no force for Alexey Alexandrovitch. Honesty is only negative merit, he replied. But you will do me a great favor, nevertheless, said Stepan Arkadyevitch, if you will speak a little word to Pomorsky, when you happen to meet him, you know. Yes. Certainly. 
But it seems to me that this depends more on Bulgarinov, said Alexey Alexandrovitch. Bulgarinov, on his part, is well disposed, said Stefan Arkadyevitch, reddening. Stefan Arkadyevitch reddened at the remembrance of Bulgarinov, because that very morning he had been at the Jew's house, and this visit had remained as an unpleasant recollection. Stefan Arkadyevitch knew perfectly well that the commission of which he wished to become a member was a new, important, and honorable enterprise, but that morning, when Bulgarinov, evidently with malice prepense, kept him with other petitioners waiting in his reception-room for two hours, the whole affair became awkward to him. Whether it was awkward to him that he, a descendant of Rurik, a Prince Oblonsky, had to wait two hours in the Jews' reception-room, or because he, for the first time in his life, was not following the example of his ancestors in serving the government, but had got into a new field, at all events it was awkward. During these two hours of waiting at Bulgarinov's, Stefan Arkadyevitch, briskly walking up and down through the reception-room, smoothing his side whiskers, occasionally entering into conversation with the other petitioners, and trying to work out a pun on his long waiting at the Jews, diligently concealed from the others, and also from himself, the trying feeling. But all that time he felt awkward and annoyed. He did not know why. It was either because he had not succeeded very well with his pun on the word Jew, how he had to chew on the cud of expectation, or for some other reason. When at last Bulgarinov, with excessive humility, received him, evidently triumphing in his humiliation, and almost refused his request, Stefan Arkadyevitch made haste to forget it all. But now, remembering it again, he reddened with shame. End of chapter 17《パート7 Chapter 18 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel. And now I have yet one more thing to talk over with you, and you know what it is about. Anna said Stefan Arkadyevitch, after a moment's silence, and shaking off these disagreeable memories. When Oblonsky spoke on his name, Karenin's face entirely changed. In place of its former vivacity, it took on an expression of corpse-like rigidity and weariness. "'What more do you want of me?' said he, turning about on his armchair and shutting his pince-nez. "'A decision. Some sort of a decision, Alexey Alexandrovitch. I address you not as—' he was going to say, a deceived husband— but fearing that it might hurt his cause, he stopped, and substituted with little appropriateness, not as a statesman, but simply as a man, and a good man, and a Christian. You ought to have pity on her. "'In what way could I, properly?' asked Karenin, quietly. "'Yes, have pity on her. If you saw her as I do—I have seen her all winter—you would pity her.' Her position is cruel. I thought, said Karenin suddenly, in a piercing, almost whining voice, that Anna Arkadyevna had obtained all that she wished. Oh, Alexey Alexandrovitch, for God's sake, let us not make recriminations. What is past is past, and you know what she is now waiting for and hoping for is the divorce. But I understood that in case I kept my son, 
Anna Arkadyevna refused the divorce, and so my silence was equivalent to a reply, and I thought the question settled. I consider it settled, said he, with more and more warmth. For God's sake, don't get angry, said Stepan Arkadyevitch, touching his brother-in-law's knee. This question is not settled. If you will allow me to recapitulate, the affair stands thus. When you separated, you were as great, as magnanimous as was possible to be. You granted her everything, her freedom, even a divorce if she wanted one. She appreciated it. No, you don't think so, but she appreciated it absolutely, to such a degree that, at first, feeling her guilt towards you, she did not, she could not, reason about it at all. She refused everything. But the reality and time have shown her that her position is painful and intolerable. Anna Arkadyevna's life cannot interest me, said Karenin, raising his eyebrows. Permit me to disbelieve that, replied Stepan Arkadyevitch, gently. Her position is painful to her, and without any escape whatever. She deserves it, you say. But she acknowledges that, and does not complain. She says up and down that she should never dare to ask anything of you. But I, and all her relatives, all who love her, beg and implore you to have pity on her. Why should she suffer? Whose advantage is it? Excuse me, you seem to accuse me of being to blame. Oh, not at all, not at all. Understand me, said Stepan Arkadyevitch, touching Karenin's arm, as if he believed that personal contact would have a mollifying effect on his brother-in-law. I merely say this. Her position is painful, and you can relieve it, and it will not cost you anything. I will so arrange the matter that you shall have no trouble about it. Besides, you have promised. My consent has been already given, and I had supposed that the question of our son had decided the matter. Besides, I hoped that Anna Arkadyevna would in her turn have the generosity to understand. His trembling lips could hardly utter the words, and he turned pale. She leaves all to your magnanimity. She asks, she implores, for only one thing, to be relieved from this unendurable position in which she finds herself. She asks for her son. Alexey Alexandrovitch, you are a good man. Just enter for a moment into her feelings. The question of the divorce is for her a matter of life or death. If you had not given your promise, she would have been resigned to her situation and lived in the country. But you did give your promise, and she wrote you and came to Moscow. And there in Moscow, where every familiar face was a knife in her heart, she has been living for six months, every day expecting an answer. Her situation is that of a condemned criminal who, for months, has had the rope around his neck, and does not know whether he is to expect pardon or execution. Pity her, and, besides, I will take care to arrange all. Vos scruples. I am not speaking of that, not of that, said Alexey Alexandrovitch, with some disgust. But perhaps I promised more than I had the right to promise. Then... You refuse to do what you have promised. I never refused to do all that I could, but I must have time to consider how far what I promised is permissible. No, Alexey Alexandrovitch, said Oblonsky, leaping to his feet. 
I do not wish to believe this. She is as unhappy as it is possible for a woman to be, and you cannot refuse such— How far what I promised is permissible? Vous profez d'autre un libre pensieur. But I, as a believer, cannot defy the law of Christianity in a matter so important. But in Christian communities, and here in Russia, divorce is permitted, said Stefan Arkadyevitch. Divorce is permitted by our church, and we see— Permitted, but not in this sense. Alexey Alexandrovitch, I don't know you, said Oblonsky, after a moment's silence. You are not the same man you were. Do you not forgive all? And did we not appreciate your magnanimity? Were you not moved by genuine Christian feeling? Weren't you ready to sacrifice everything? You yourself said, If any man will take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And now— I beg of you, said Karenin, rising suddenly and turning pale with a trembling jaw. I beg of you, he said in a high-pitched voice, to cut short— to cut short this conversation. Oh, well, pardon me, pardon me, if I have offended you, said Stefan Arkadyevitch, in confusion, holding out his hand. But I had to fulfill the mission I was charged with. Alexey Alexandrovitch gave him his hand and said, after a moment's reflection, I must have time to think about it, and seek for light. You shall have my final answer day after tomorrow. End of chapter 18 Part 7, Chapter 19 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy Translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel Stefan Arkadyevitch was going out when Kornai came in and announced Sergei Alexeyevich who is Sergey Alexeyevich? Oblonsky began to ask, but in an instant he remembered. Oh, Sir Rosa, he exclaimed, and here was I, thinking it was some director of a department, he said to himself. Anna begged me to see him. And he recalled the sad, timid expression with which, as he left her, Anna had said to him, You will see him, and can find out what he is doing, and where he is, and who is taking care of him, and, Steva, if possible, would it be possible? He knew what she meant by the words, if possible. If it were possible to get the divorce so as to have her son. But now Stefan Arkadyevitch knew that this was out of the question. He was none the less glad to see his nephew again. Alexey Alexandrovitch reminded his brother-in-law that he must not talk to him of his mother, and begged him not even by a word to remind him of her. He was very ill after that last interview with his mother, which we were not prepared for, said Alexey Alexandrovitch, and for a while we feared for his life. But sensible medical treatment and sea-bathing in the summer restored him to health, and I have followed the doctor's advice and sent him to school. Activity, being with companions of his own age, have had a happy influence on him. His health is good, and he is studying well. Why, he's becoming quite a young man. He is no longer Sir Rosa. He is full-grown, Sergey Alexeyevich, said Stefan Arkadyevitch, with a smile, as a handsome, tall, robust boy, dressed in a kartochka, or jacket, and long trousers, came in briskly and without constraint. 
the boy had a look of sound health and good spirits. He bowed to his uncle as to a stranger. Then, as he remembered him, he reddened, and, as if offended and angry at something, turned away, and handed his school report to his father. "'Well, that is excellent,' said Corinnan. "'You now may go and play.' "'He has grown tall and slender, and lost his childish look, and become a real boy. I like it,' remarked Stefan Arkadyevitch, with a smile. "'Do you remember me?' The boy quickly glanced at his father. "'I remember you, mon oncle,' answered the boy, looking at Stefan Arkadyevitch, and then casting down his eyes. The uncle called the lad to him, and took his hand. "'Well, how are you?' he asked, wanting to talk, but not knowing what to say. The boy, blushing and not answering, hastily withdrew his hand, and, as soon as his uncle had released it, flew away like a bird set free. A year had passed since Sarosa had seen his mother for the last time. During this time he had not even heard anything about her. He had been sent to school, and had become acquainted with boys of his own age, and learned to like them. His dreams and recollections about his mother, which after his interview with her had made him ill, now no longer occupied his mind. When they reoccurred to him, he even tried to get rid of them, regarding them as disgraceful for a boy and fit only for girls. He knew that his parents had quarrelled and parted, and that he must accustom himself to the idea of remaining with his father. The sight of his uncle, who looked like his mother, was unpleasant to him, because it awakened memories which caused him shame, and it was still more unpleasant, because, from certain words which he had caught as he entered the door, and by the peculiar expression of his father's and his uncle's faces, he knew that they were talking about his mother, and so as not to blame his father, with whom he lived and on whom he was dependent, and especially so as not to give way to a sentiment which he felt was too degrading, he tried not to look at his uncle, who had come to disturb his tranquillity, and not to think of the past. But when, shortly after, Stefan Arkadyevitch went out, he found the boy on the stairs, and he called him to him, and asked him how he spent his spare time, now that he was at school. Sir Rosa, out of his father's presence, talked freely. "'We have a railroad now,' he said, in answer to his question. "'Just see. These two are sitting on the seat. They are passengers, and there is one man trying to stand on the seat, and there they all are going, and by means of our arms and our belts we go through the whole length of the hall, and the doors open in front. And I tell you it's very hard here for the conductor.' "'Is that the one standing?' asked Stefan Arkadyevitch, amused. "'Yes. He has to be bold and skillful, because the train comes to a very sudden stop, and he might get thrown over.' "'Well, that is no joke,' said Stefan Arkadyevitch, sadly, as he looked at the boy's bright eyes, which were like his mother's, and which had already lost their childish look of innocence. And, although he had promised Alexey Alexandrovitch not to speak of Anna, he could not resist. "'Do you remember your mother?' he asked suddenly. "'No, I do not.' Sir Rosa answered quickly, turning red, and his uncle could not make him talk any more. When the Russian tutor found Sir Rosa on the stairs half an hour after, he could not make out whether he was crying or was sulky. "'Did you hurt yourself when you fell?' he asked. "'I said this was a dangerous game, and shall I have to tell your father?' "'If I had, no one should find it out,' answered the boy. "'Well, what's the matter, then?' 
Let me alone. What is it to him whether I remember or not? Why did he remind me? Let me be. And the boy seemed to defy not only his tutor, but the whole world. End of chapter 19 Part 7, Chapter 20 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy Translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel. Stepan Arkadyevitch, as usual, did not waste his time at Petersburg. He had not only his business to attend to, his sister's divorce and his new position to look after, but moreover, as he said, to refresh himself after musty Moscow. For Moscow, in spite of its café chantants and its omnibuses, was still only a stagnant marsh. Stefan Arkadyevitch always felt that this was so. Living in Moscow, especially in proximity to his family, he was conscious that his spirit flagged. When his life in Moscow was long unbroken by a trip to Petersburg, he even began to be annoyed by his wife's bad temper and reproaches, and to worry over his health, the education of his children, and the petty details of the household. He even went so far as to be disturbed about his debts. As soon as he set foot in Petersburg, and entered that circle where life was really life, and not vegetating, as in Moscow, immediately all such thoughts disappeared, like wax in the fire. His wife? He had just been talking with Prince Chechensky. Prince Chechensky had a wife and a family, grown-up boys, pages now, and he had another establishment, outside the law, and in this also there were children. But— Though the first family was well enough in a way, Prince Chechensky felt happier with his second family, and he had introduced his oldest legitimate son into his other family. He told Stefan Arkadyevitch he considered it a good way to train him and develop him. What would have been said about that in Moscow? Children. In Petersburg fathers didn't trouble themselves with their children. Children were educated in institutions— and there was no sign of that crazy notion in vogue in Moscow, Lvov shared in it, that children should have all the luxuries, and their parents nothing but care and trouble. The government service? The service, too, was not that tiresome, hopeless treadmill that it was in Moscow. Here there was interest in the service, meetings with men in authority, mutual services, opportune words spoken, the knowledge of how to take advantage of chances— and a man might suddenly find himself high in his career, like Bryantsev, whom Stefan Arkadyevitch met that evening, and who was now a leading dignitary. Yes, there was something interesting in the service here. The Petersburg views about money especially appealed to Stefan Arkadyevitch. Bartonyansky, who had spent at least fifty thousand roubles, judging by the rate at which he was living, made a remark which deeply impressed him. Just before dinner, as they were talking together, Stefan Arkadyevitch had said, "'You seem to have some connection with Mordvinsky. You might do me a favor. Please say a little word to him in my behalf. It is a place which I should like to have, member of the commission.' "'Well, I won't forget. Only what pleasure can you have in attending to this railroad business with the Jews? Of course, if you want it. But still, it's a wretched business.' Stefan Arkadyevitch did not say to him that it was no sinecure. Bartnyansky would not have known what he meant. I need money. I must have something to live on. 
But don't you live, then? Yes, but in debt. Much? asked Bartonyensky, sympathetically. Yes, twenty thousand roubles. Bartonyensky broke out into a gay laugh. Oh, happy man! I have a million and a half of debts, and not a rouble, and as you see, I live all the same. And Stefan Arkadyevitch saw that this was not mere words, but was actually true. Zivakhov was in debt three hundred thousand, and had not a kopeck. Petrovsky had spent five millions, and yet went on living just as before, and had charge of the finances, and had only twenty thousand salary. Petersburg had a delightful physical influence on Stefan Arkadyevitch. It made him feel younger. In Moscow he sometimes detected gray hairs. He would fall asleep after dinner. It made him breathe hard to go upstairs. He was dull in the company of young women. He no longer danced at balls. At Petersburg he experienced what the sixty-year-old Prince Pyotr Oblonsky, who had just returned from abroad, told him one evening. "'We don't know how to live here,' said Pyotr Oblonsky. "'For example, I spent the summer at Baden, and now, honestly, I feel like a new man. I see a young woman, and—hm. I enjoy my dinner. I can take my wine. I'm well and vigorous. When I come back to Russia, I have to see my wife, have even to go into the country. You wouldn't believe it, but in a couple of weeks I am in my dressing-gown. Good-bye to the young beauties.' I am old. Think only of the salvation of my soul. To make me over, I go to Paris. Stefan Arkadyevitch felt the same difference as Pyotr Oblonsky did. In Moscow he reached such a low ebb of vitality that he felt sure that, if he ever attained the same age, he too should be driven to thinking about the salvation of his soul. In Petersburg he was conscious of being a well-regulated man." Between the Princess Betsy Sversky and Stefan Arkadyevitch there had been for a long time a very strange relationship. He always jested with her, and he always said very improper things by way of jest, knowing that they pleased her more than anything else. The day after his interview with Karinin, Stefan Arkadyevitch went to see her, and, feeling particularly young, he conducted himself with more than his usual levity, and went so far in his impropriety that he could not retrieve his steps, and, unfortunately, he felt that she was not only displeased, but even opposed to him. Yet this tone had been established because it generally amused her. So he was glad to have the Princess Mayakaya interrupt their tete-a-tete. "'Ah, here you are,' said she, when she saw him. "'Well, and how is your poor sister? Oh, don't look at me so. Since women who are a thousand times worse than she throw stones at her, I think she did quite right.' I can't forgive Vronsky for not letting me know that she was in Petersburg. I should have gone to see her, and gone with her everywhere. Give her my love. Now tell me about her. Well, her position is a very painful one. She, Stefan Arkadyevitch began, in the simplicity of his heart, taking the princess's words as genuine money, when she said, Tell me about your sister. But the princess, in her usual way, interrupted him and began to talk herself. She did what everybody but myself does, and hides. But she was not willing to lie, and she did right, and she has at least belettered herself in having forsaken that imbecile—I beg your pardon—your brother-in-law. Everybody said he was a genius. A genius! I was the only one who said he was a goose. 
and people have come to be of my opinion, now that he has taken up with the Countess Lydia and Landau. I should not like to agree with everybody. It's stupid. But this time I can't help it. Now please explain something to me, said Stepan Arkadyevitch. What does this mean? Yesterday I was at his house, talking of the divorce, and I asked him for a definite answer. My brother-in-law said to me that he could not give me an answer without reflection, and this morning I received an invitation from Lydia Ivanovna for this evening, instead of an answer. Now, that's just it, cried the princess, delighted. They will consult Landau as to what to say. Why Landau? Who is Landau? What? You don't know Jules Landau? La femme Jules Landau? La clairvoyante? He also, in my opinion, is an imbecile. But on him depends your sister's fate. That's what comes of living in the provinces. Landau, you must know, was commis of a mercantile house at Paris, and went to see a doctor. He fell asleep in the waiting-room, and, while he was asleep, gave advice to all the sick. Most astonishing advice. Then Yuri Melyadinsky's wife, you know, he was sick, called him to see her husband. He treated her husband. In my opinion, he didn't do him any good, for Melyadinsky is just as sick as he was before. But his wife and he believe in Landau. They took him into their house. They brought him to Russia. Naturally, people here have thrown themselves at him. He treats everybody. He cured the Countess Bezoboff, and she fell so in love with him that she has adopted him. How? Adopted him? Yes, adopted him. He isn't Landau any more, but Count Bezuboff. But Lydia, and I like her very much, in spite of her crankiness, must needs be smitten with him, and nothing that she and Alexey Alexandrovitch take up is decided without consulting him. Your sister's fate is, therefore, in the hands of this Count Bezuboff, alias Landau. End of chapter 20「Part Seven, Chapter Twenty One of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel. After an excellent dinner with Bartnyansky and considerable cognac, Stefan Arkadyevitch went to the Countess Lydia Ivanovna's a little later than the hour designated. Who is with the Countess? The Frenchman? He asked of the Swiss as he noticed beside Alexey Alexandrovitch's well-known overcoat a curious mantle with clasps. "'Alexey Alexandrovitch Karinin and the Count Bezoboff,' answered the servant, stolidly. "'Princess Mayakaya was right,' thought Oblonsky, as he went upstairs. "'Strange. It would be a good thing to cultivate the Countess. She has great influence. If she would say a little word in my behalf to Pomorsky, it would be just the thing.' It was still very light outdoors, but the blinds were drawn in the Countess Lydia Ivanovna's little drawing-room, and the lamps were lighted. At a round table on which was a lamp, the Countess and Alexey Alexandrovitch were sitting, engaged in a confidential talk. A short, lean, pale man, with knock-kneed legs and a feminine figure, with long hair falling over his coat-collar, and handsome, glowing eyes, was examining the portraits on the wall at the other end of the room. Stefan Arkadyevitch, after having greeted the Countess and Alexey Alexandrovitch, 
involuntarily turned round to look once more at this singular personage. "'Monsieur Landau,' said the countess, gently, and with a precaution which struck Oblonsky. The introduction was made. Landau hastily glanced around, and coming up, placed his moist, unresponsive hand in Oblonsky's, and immediately went back to look at the portraits. Lydia Ivanovna and Alexey Alexandrovitch exchanged significant glances. "'I am very glad to see you to-day,' said the countess to Stefan Arkadyevitch, motioning him to a chair. "'You noticed,' added she, in a low voice, glancing at the Frenchman, "'that I introduced him to you by the name of Landau. But his name is really Count Bezabov, as you probably know. Only he is not fond of the title.' "'Yes, I heard about it,' said Stefan Arkadyevitch. "'It is said he perfectly cured Countess Bezabov.' "'She came to see me to-day,' said the Countess, addressing Alexey Alexandrovitch. "'And it was sad to see her. This separation is terrible for her. It is such a blow to her.' "'Then he is positively going?' "'Yes, he is going to Paris. Yesterday he heard a voice,' said Lydia Ivanovna, looking at Stefan Arkadyevitch. "'Oh, a voice,' repeated he, feeling that it was necessary to use great prudence among these people, where things occurred, or might occur, without his being able to explain them. A moment's silence ensued, at the end of which the Countess Lydia Ivanovna, as if accidentally stumbling on the chief topic of their conversation, said, with a sweet smile, addressing Oblonsky, "'I have known of you for a long time, and I am delighted to make your acquaintance. Les amis de nos amis sont nos amis.' But to be truly friends, we must know what is passing in the souls of those we love, and I fear you do not with regard to Alexey Alexandrovitch. You understand what I mean, she said, raising her beautiful, dreamy eyes. I understand in part that Alexey Alexandrovitch's position, answered Oblonsky, not understanding very well what she was talking about, and preferring to confine himself to generalities. The change is not in his external position, said the countess, solemnly, and at the same time looking tenderly at Alexey Alexandrovitch, who had risen to join Landau. It is his heart which has changed. A new heart has been given to him, and I very much fear that you do not realize sufficiently the great transformation which has taken place in him. That is, in a general way, I can perceive the change in him, "'We have always been friends, and now,' said Oblonsky, answering the deep gaze of the countess with a tender one, as he queried with which of the two ministers she could do him the most effective service. "'This transformation cannot diminish his love for his neighbor. On the contrary, the change which has taken place must increase love. But I fear you don't understand me. Will you not have some tea?' she asked, looking toward a lackey who entered with the tea-tray." "'Not altogether, Countess. "'Of course, his misfortune. "'Yes, he underwent a misfortune, "'but it became the highest happiness "'because his heart was renewed,' said she, "'raising her eyes lovingly to Stepan Arkadyevitch. "'I believe I shall have to get her to speak to them both,' "'thought Oblonsky. "'Oh, assuredly, Countess,' said he. "'But I think that these changes are so personal.' that no one likes to speak of them, even to his most intimate friends. On the contrary, we ought to speak, and to help one another. Yes, without doubt, but there are such differences of conviction, and, moreover, 
and Oblonsky smiled unctuously. There cannot be differences in regard to sacred truth. Oh, yes, of course, but... Stefan Arkadyevitch grew confused and stopped speaking. He perceived that the countess was talking about religion. It seems to me that he's going to sleep, said Alexey Alexandrovitch, approaching the countess and speaking in a significant whisper. Stefan Arkadyevitch turned round. Landau was seated near the window, with his elbow leaning on the arm and back of a chair, and his head bowed as he saw the looks turned toward him. He raised his head and smiled in a naive and childlike manner. "'Don't pay attention to him,' said the countess, pushing a chair toward Alexey Alexandrovitch. "'I have noticed,' she began, but was interrupted by a lackey bringing her a letter. She read it through with extraordinary rapidity, sent a reply, and resumed the thread of her discourse. I have noticed that Muscovites, the men especially, are very indifferent to religion. Oh, no, Countess, I think that Muscovites have the reputation of being very pious, replied Stefan Arkadyevitch. But as far as I have observed, you yourself, said Alexey Alexandrovitch, with his weary smile, I am sorry to say, belong to that category of the indifference. Is it possible to be indifferent? cried Lydia Ivanovna. "'I am not indifferent, but rather in the attitude of expectation,' answered Oblonsky, with his most agreeable smile. "'I do not yet think that the time for me to settle such questions has come yet.' Alexey Alexandrovitch and the Countess exchanged glances. "'We can never know whether the time for us has come or not,' said Alexey Alexandrovitch sternly. "'We ought not even to think whether we are prepared or not. The blessing does not follow human calculations.' does not always light upon the most deserving, but comes to those who are unprepared. A witness saw. It seems that it isn't to be now, murmured the countess, following with her eyes the movements of the Frenchman. Landau got up and joined them. May I listen? asked he. Oh, yes, I do not wish to disturb you, said the countess tenderly. Sit down with us. The essential thing is not to close one's eyes to the light, continued Alexey Alexandrovitch. "'Ah, if you knew what a blessing we experience when we feel his constant presence in our souls,' said the Countess Lydia Ivanovna, with an ecstatic smile. "'But a man may feel himself incapable of rising to such a height,' said Stefan Arkadyevitch, convinced that the heights of religion were not his forte, but fearing to offend a person who, by one word to Pomorsky, might get him the place that he wanted.' "'You mean that sin may prevent him?' asked Lydia Ivanovna. "'But that is a mistaken view. "'For him who believes, there is no more sin. "'Sin is already redeemed. "'Pardon,' she asked, as the lackey brought her another note. "'She read it and answered verbally. "'Say to-morrow, at the Grand Duchess's.' "'Then she continued. "'For the believer, there is no sin.' "'Yes, but faith without works is dead,' said Stefan Arkadyevitch recalling this phrase of his catechism, with a smile establishing his independence. "'That is the most famous passage in the epistle of St. James,' said Alexey Alexandrovitch, in a reproachful tone, looking at the countess, as if to recall frequent discussions on the subject. "'How much harm the false interpretation of that passage has done! It has driven more persons from the faith than anything else. I have no works, therefore I cannot believe,' is the logical conclusion from it, it means exactly the opposite. 
it is our monks who claim to be saved by works, by their fastings, their abstinences, said the countess, with an air of fastidious scorn. Our way is far better and easier, she added, looking at Oblonsky with that scorching smile with which, at court, she was wont to wither young maids of honor, disconcerted at the newness of their position. We are saved by Christ, who suffered for us. We are saved by faith, resumed Alexey Alexandrovitch. Vous comprehends l'anglais? asked Lydia Ivanovna, and, receiving an affirmative answer, she rose and took a small book from a side-table. Here I am going to read to you, safe and happy, or under the wing, said she, with a look of interrogation at Karenin. It is very short, added she, resuming her seat and opening the book. Here the way is described by which faith is attained, and the joy which is higher than any that earth can give, which fills the soul of the believer. A man who believes cannot be unhappy, because he is no longer alone. Yes, and here, you see, she was about to go on reading, when again the lackey appeared. From Borosden, say to-morrow, at two o'clock. Yes, she said with a sigh, marking the place in the book with her finger, and looking up with her pensive, loving eyes. This is the way true faith is acquired. Are you acquainted with Marie Sanina? You have heard of her great affliction. She lost her only son. She was in despair. Well, how is it now? She found this friend. She thanks God for the death of her child. Such is the happiness faith can give. Ah, yes. This is very, murmured Stefan Arkadyevitch, glad to be able to keep silent during this reading, and to think over his affairs a little. I shall do better not to ask anything to-day, thought he. Only how can I get out of this without compromising myself? This will be dull for you, said the Countess de Landau. You don't understand English, but this is short. Oh, I shall understand, said he with a smile, and he shut his eyes. Alexey Alexandrovitch and the Countess significantly looked at one another, and the reading began. End of chapter 21 Part Seven, Chapter Twenty Two of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel. Stefan Arkadyevitch felt perfectly bewildered by these strange and to him unwanted discourses to which he had been listening. After the stagnation of Moscow, the complication of life in Petersburg as a general thing had an enlivening effect on him but he liked it and was at home in it when he was among those whom he knew well. In this unfamiliar environment he was bewildered and stupefied, and could not make anything out of it. As he listened to the reading, and saw the brilliant eyes of Landau, naive or knavish, he could not tell which, fixed on him, he felt a peculiar heaviness in his head. The most heterogeneous thoughts went whirling through his brain. Marie Sanina is happy about having lost her son. It would be good if I could only smoke. To be saved, one needs only to believe. The monks do not understand about this, but the Countess Lydia Ivanovna does. What makes my head feel so heavy? Is it the brandy, or the strangeness of all this? 
I have done nothing out of the way as yet, but I shan't venture to ask anything to-day. It is said they make you say your prayers. Suppose they should make me say mine. That would be too nonsensical. What stuff that is she is reading. But she reads well. Landau Bezoboff. Why is he Bezoboff? Suddenly Stefan Arkadyevitch felt that his lower jaw was irresistibly beginning to accomplish a yawn. He smoothed his whiskers to conceal the yawn, and shook himself. But the next moment he felt sure that he was asleep, and even beginning to snore. The voice of the Countess Lydia Ivanovna waked him, saying, "'He's asleep.' Stefan Arkadyevitch waked with a start, feeling a consciousness of guilt. But instantly he was relieved to find that the words, "'He's asleep,' had reference not to himself, but to Landau. The Frenchman was as sound asleep as Stefan Arkadyevitch had been, but Stefan Arkadyevitch's nap would have offended them. He did not think of this at the time, so strange did everything seem. But Landau's rejoiced them exceedingly, and especially the Countess Lydia Ivanovna. Mon ami, said the Countess Lydia Ivanovna, cautiously so as not to disturb him, and picked up the folds of her silk gown, in the enthusiasm of the moment, calling Karenin, not Alexey Alexandrovitch, but, Mon ami, donnez-le la main, voyez-vous Shh, said she to the lackey, who once more entered the parlour with a message. I can't receive it now. The Frenchman slept, or pretended to sleep, leaning his head on the back of his armchair, and resting his hand on his knee, but making feeble gestures, as if he were trying to catch something. Alexey Alexandrovitch got up, and, cautiously, though he tripped over a table as he did so, stepped over to the chair, and put his hand into the Frenchman's hand. Stefan Arkadyevitch also got up, and opening his eyes wide, and trying to decide whether he were asleep or not, looked from one to the other, and felt his ideas growing more and more confused. Que la personne qui asserve la donnière, ce qui demande, quelle sorte the person who came in last, the one who is questioning, let him go away, murmured the Frenchman, without opening his eyes. Vous m'escurez, mais vos vues, revenez vers d'hiers, encore moi demain. You will excuse me, but you understand. I come back at ten o'clock, or, still better, to-morrow. Quelle sorte, repeated the Frenchman, impatiently. C'est moi, no ce pas? asked Oblonsky, and at an affirmative sign, forgetting what he was going to ask Lydia Ivanovna, forgetting his sister's affairs, with one single desire to escape as soon as possible, hastened out on his tiptoes, and rushed down into the street as if he were fleeing from a pest-house, and for a long time talked and jested with his driver, so as to bring back his spirits. At the French theatre, which he reached in time for the last act, and afterward over his champagne, at the Tartars, Stefan Arkadyevitch gradually began to breathe more freely in the friendly atmosphere. And nevertheless, all that evening he was very far from being himself. When he returned to the house of Pyotr Oblonsky, where he made his home in Petersburg, he found a note from Betsy. She wrote him that she was very desirous of finishing their talk, and urged him to call the next day. He had hardly finished reading this note and making up a face at it, when heavy shuffling steps were heard downstairs, as of men lifting some heavy object. 
Stefan Arkadyevitch went out to see what it was. It was the rejuvenated Pyotr Oblonsky, who was so tipsy that he could not walk upstairs, but when he caught sight of Stefan Arkadyevitch, he ordered his attendants to put him on his feet, and, clinging to Stefan Arkadyevitch's arm, he managed to reach his room, where he began to relate how he had spent the evening, till he fell asleep. Stefan Arkadyevitch himself was in such a weak state of mind that, contrary to his custom, he did not fall asleep quickly. What he had heard and seen during the day was disgusting, but more disgusting than anything else was the recollection of the evening at the Countess Lydia Ivanovna's. The next day he received from Alexey Alexandrovitch a flat refusal in the matter of the divorce, and knew that this decision was based on the words which the Frenchman had uttered during his slumber, real or feigned. End of chapter 22《Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Part Seven, Chapter Twenty Three of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel. In order that anything may be accomplished in family life, it is requisite that between the husband and wife there should be either absolute discord or loving harmony. But when the relations between the two are uncertain, and there is neither the one nor the other nothing can be accomplished. Many families remain for years in places of which the husband and wife both are tired and disgusted, simply because there is neither full discord nor full concord. Unendurable to Vronsky and Anna was their life in Moscow, in the heat and dust, when the sun shone, not now with its springtime beauty, but with its summer fervor, and all the trees along the boulevards had been long in leaf and the leaves were already thick with dust. Though they had long before decided to remove to Vazdvizenskoya, still they continued to live in Moscow, which was detestable to them both, and the reason for this was that of late there had been no harmony between them. The exasperation which tended to keep them apart had no tangible cause, and all attempts at an explanation, instead of closing the chasm, only widened it. It was an internal irritation which, as far as she was concerned, had for its source the diminution of his love for her, and on his part his annoyance because, thanks to her, he found himself placed in an embarrassing position, which she, instead of trying to relieve, made still more difficult. Neither he nor she formulated any definite complaints, but each considered the other in the wrong, and at every opportunity tried to make this evident." She considered that he, with all his habits, ideas, desires, with all his spiritual and physical tendencies, had one distinguishing quality, the power of loving women, and this love, she felt, ought by rights to be wholly concentrated on her. This love had diminished. Consequently, in her opinion, a part of this love must necessarily be transferred to others or to some other woman, and she was jealous." She was jealous, not of any definite woman, but of his diminished love for her. 
having as yet no definite object for her jealousy to rest on, she was on the watch for one. On the slightest pretext, she would transfer her jealousy from one person to another. Sometimes she suspected him of low amours, which he might enter into as an unmarried man about town. Sometimes she distrusted ladies, whom he might meet in society. Then again, with the imaginary young lady, whom he would be likely to marry in case he broke with her. This form of jealousy especially tormented her, for the reason that he himself had carelessly, in a moment of confidence one day, spoken of his mother's lack of tact in having ventured to propose to him to marry the young Princess Sorokin. And being thus jealous, Anna felt indignant with him, and kept finding reasons for her indignation. For all the painfulness of her position, she blamed him. She considered him responsible for her painful state of expectancy, which she was enduring in Moscow, as it were suspended between heaven and earth, for the uncertainty in which she lived, for Alexey Alexandrovitch's delay and indecision, and for her loneliness. If he loved her, he would understand the difficulty of her position, and save her from it. He was to blame because she was living in Moscow, and not in the country. He could not live in the country, as she wanted to do. He wanted society, and so condemned her to this horrible position, the trials of which he could not comprehend. And, again, he was responsible for depriving her forever of her son. Even those rare moments of tenderness which they occasionally enjoyed did not appease her. She now detected in his tenderness a shade of calmness, of assurance, which he had never before shown, and which exasperated her. It was getting dark. Vronsky was at a gentleman's dinner, and Anna, while waiting for him, had taken refuge in his library, where the noise of the street was less oppressive than in the rest of the house. She walked up and down, going over in memory their last altercation. As she recalled in memory the insulting words that had been spoken, and tried to think what had led to it, she at last remembered how the quarrel had begun. For some time she found it impossible to believe that any dissension could have arisen from such an inoffensive conversation, from a subject which was so unimportant to anyone. But such was the fact. It all began from his having made sport of women's gymnasia, declaring them unnecessary, and she had taken up the cudgels in their defence. He had disrespectfully attacked the education of women in general, and had said that Hannah, Anna's English protégée, had not the slightest need of knowing anything about physics. That had irritated Anna. She saw in it a derogatory reference to her own occupations, and she conjured up and uttered a phrase which was meant to repay him for the pain he inflicted on her. I did not expect that you would comprehend me and my feelings as a man who really loved would, but I expected at least some delicacy, said she. And in reality he had reddened with vexation and made some unpleasant remark. She did not remember what retort she then made, but, whatever it was, he had said with a manifest intention of hurting her feelings, I confess your devotion to that girl does not interest me, because I can see nothing in it but affectation. This cruelty of his, with which he demolished the fabric which she had with such labor erected so as to endure the trials of her life, this injustice of his in accusing her of pretense and affectation, drove her frantic. It is very unfortunate that only what is low and material is comprehensible to you, she had retorted and she left the room. When, in the evening, he came to see her, 
the discussion was not resumed, but they both felt that it was not forgotten. All this day he had not been at home, and she was so lonely and wretched, as she thought of their quarrels, that she resolved to forget everything, to ask his forgiveness, and to take the blame on herself, so as to bring about a reconciliation at any cost. I am to blame. I am irritable. I am absurdly jealous. I will make it up with him, and we will leave for the country, and there I shall be calmer, she thought. Affectation. De naturalno. She suddenly remembered the word which had so affronted her, above all in his intention of causing her pain by it. I know what he meant. He meant by affected that I did not love my daughter, but loved another's child. What does he know of the love a child can inspire? Has he the least idea what I sacrificed for him in giving up Sir Rosa? But this desire to wound me! No, he loves another woman. It must be so. And seeing that, even while she wanted to calm herself, she was once more going over the circle she had so many times traversed, and was once more returning to the same state of irritation, she was horror-struck. Is it wholly out of the question? Can I not attach him to myself? she queried, and then she began at the beginning again. He is true. He is honorable. He loves me. I love him. In a day or two dissension will be ended. What is necessary? Calmness, gentleness, and I shall bring him back to me. Yes, now, when he comes, I will tell him that I was to blame, although I was not to blame, and we will go off. And, in order not to think any more, and not to give way to her irritation, she gave orders to bring down her trunks, to begin preparations for departure. At ten o'clock, Vronsky came in. End of chapter 23「Part Seven, Chapter Twenty Four of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel. Well, did you have a gay time? asked Anna, going to meet him with an apologetic and affectionate look on her face. As such things usually are, answered he, noticing at once by her face that she was in one of her best moods. He was already accustomed to such metamorphoses, and this time he was particularly glad, because he himself was in his happiest frame of mind. "'What do I see? This is good,' he added, pointing to the trunks in the entry. "'Yes, we must go. I went out to walk to-day, and it was so good that I longed to get back to the country. There's nothing to keep you here, is there?' "'I should like nothing better. I will be back immediately, and we will talk it over.' All I want is to change my coat. Have the tea brought. There was something irritating in the tone in which he said, This is good, as one speaks to a child which has ceased to be capricious, and still more irritating was the discrepancy between her apologetic and his self-confident tone, and for a moment she felt rising within her the desire to be pugnacious. But making an effort to restrain herself, she relinquished it, and met Vronsky as gaily as before when he came in, she told him calmly the incidents of the day, and her plans for departure, using in part the very words she had thought over. "'Do you know, it came over me like an inspiration,' said she. "'Why wait here for the divorce? Will it not be all the same when we are in the country? I cannot wait longer. I want to stop hoping about the divorce. 
I don't want to hear anything more about it. I think it won't have any more effect on my life. Don't you agree with me? Oh, yes, said he, looking with disquietude at Anna's excited face. Come, tell me what you did. Who were there? said she, after a moment's silence. Vronsky named over the guests. The dinner was excellent, and we had a boat race, and it was all very jolly. But in Moscow, nothing can be done sans ridicule. Some women, the swimming teacher of the Queen of Sweden, gave us an exhibition of her art. What? Did she swim for you? demanded Anna, frowning. Yes, in an ugly red costume de nation. She was old and hideous. What day do we go? What an inane idea! Was there anything extraordinary about her method of swimming? asked Anna, not replying to his question. Not at all. I tell you, it was horribly stupid. When have you decided to go? Anna tossed her head, as if to get rid of a disagreeable thought. When shall we go? The sooner, the better. Tomorrow we can't, but the day after. Yes. No. Wait. A day after tomorrow is Monday. I shall have to go to Maman, said Vronsky, somewhat confused, because, as he mentioned his mother's name, he saw Anna's eyes fixed with a look of suspicion on him, and his confusion increased her distrust. She forgot the Queen of Sweden's swimming teacher in her alarm about the Princess Sorokin, who was living at a country seat in the suburbs of Moscow with the old countess. Can't you go there tomorrow? Why, no, that's impossible. There is some business that I must attend to, a power of attorney, and the money will not be ready tomorrow. If that is so, we won't go at all. But why not? I won't go if it is put off later, Sunday or never. Why so? cried Vronsky, in astonishment. There's no sense in that. It has no sense for you, because you never take me into account at all. You can't understand my life. The only thing that interests me here is Hannah. You say that is hypocrisy. You said last evening that I did not love my daughter, but that I pretended to love this English girl, that this was affectation. I should like to know what can be natural in the life I lead here. For an instant she came to herself, and was frightened because she had broken her vow. But, though she knew that she was dashing to destruction, she could not resist the temptation of proving to him that he was in the wrong. She could not help heaping insults on him. I never said that. I said that I did not sympathize with this sudden tenderness for her. Why do you, who boast of being straightforward, tell me a lie? I never boast, and I never tell lies, said he, repressing the anger which was rising within him. And I am very sorry if you do not respect— Respect! That was invented to cover up the lack of love— if you don't love me any more, it would be better and more honorable to say so. No, this is becoming intolerable, cried the Count, suddenly leaping from his chair, and, standing in front of her, speaking in measured tones. Anna, he asked, why do you try my patience so? And she could see how he was holding back the bitter words that were ready to escape him. It has its limits. What do you mean by that? she cried looking with terror at the unconcealed expression of hate on his whole face, and especially in his fierce, cruel eyes. "'I mean,' he began, then he stopped, "'I have a right to demand what you wish of me.' "'What can I wish?' 
i can only wish that you do not abandon me as you are thinking of doing said she comprehending all that he had left unsaid everything else is secondary i wish to be loved but love is gone all is over she turned toward the door stop stop said vronsky still darkly frowning but holding her by the arm what is the trouble i said that it is necessary to postpone our starting for three days and you answer by saying that i lie and am dishonorable yes and i repeat that a man who throws it into my face that he has sacrificed everything for me said she alluding to a former quarrel is worse than dishonorable he is heartless that settles it my patience is at an end cried vronsky quickly dropping her hand he hates me that is certain she thought as she went from the room in silence with tottering steps he loves some other woman that is more certain still she said to herself as she reached her room i wish to be loved but love is gone all is over she repeated the words that she had said i must put an end to it but how she asked herself sinking into a chair before her mirror the most heterogeneous thoughts crowded upon her where should she go to her aunt who had brought her up to dolly or simply go abroad by herself what was he doing alone in his study would the rupture be final or was there a possibility of reconciliation how would alexey alexandrovitch look upon it and what would her former acquaintances in petersburg say many other ideas of what would happen came into her mind but she could not take any satisfactory account of them a vague idea came into her mind and awakened some interest but she could not express it thinking once more of alexey alexandrovitch she recalled a phrase that she had used after her illness and the feeling that clung to her why didn't i die and immediately the words awoke the feeling which they had at that time expressed yes that was the idea which alone settled everything death yes is the only way of escape my terrible shame and the dishonor which i have brought on alexey alexandrovitch and Zarosa, all will be wiped away by my death if i die he will repent for me then he will be sorry he will love me he will suffer for me a smile of pity for herself came over her face as she kept mechanically taking off and putting on the rings of her left hand and with vivid imagination she pictured how he would feel after she was dead approaching steps his steps caught her ears she affected to be busily engaged in taking off her rings and did not turn her head he came to her and taking her hand said tenderly anna we will go day after tomorrow if you wish i am ready for anything well said he waiting she did not speak what do you say he asked you yourself know said she and then unable to control herself longer she burst into tears leave me leave me she murmured through her sobs i'm going away tomorrow i will do more what am i a lost woman a millstone around your neck i don't want to torment you i will set you free you do not love me you love another vronsky begged her to be calm he swore that there was not the slightest ground for her jealousy 
and that he had never ceased and never should cease to love her, and that he loved her more than ever. Anna, why torture yourself and me so? he asked, as he kissed her hand. His face expressed the deepest tenderness, and it seemed to her that her ears caught the sound of tears in his voice, and that she felt their moisture on her hand. Passing suddenly from jealousy to the most passionate tenderness, she covered his head, his neck, his hands, with kisses. End of chapter 24 Part 7, Chapter 25 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy Translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel Feeling that their reconciliation was complete, Anna the next morning eagerly made her preparations for departure. Although it was not yet definitely decided whether they should start on Monday or Tuesday, since both days had certain contingencies, Anna was busily making her preparations for the journey, feeling now perfectly indifferent whether they went a little sooner or a little later. She was engaged in her room, taking various articles from an open trunk, when Vronsky, already dressed, came to her earlier than usual. "'I'm going now to see Maman. Perhaps she can get me the money through Yegorov, and then I shall be ready to go tomorrow,' he said. She was feeling particularly cheerful, but his reference to his visit to his mother's dacha was like a stitch in the side. "'No, I shall not be ready myself,' and immediately she thought. So then it was possible to arrange it, so as to do as I wished. "'No, do just as you intended to, and now go to the dining-room, and I will join you as soon as I have taken out these unnecessary things,' she added, giving something more to Anushka, whose arms were already laden with a heap of articles. Vronsky was eating his beefsteak when she entered the dining-room. "'You can't realize how odious these apartments have become to me,' said she, as she sat down by him. "'Nothing is more detestable than these chambres garniers. There's no individuality in them, no soul. The clock, the curtains, and especially the wallpapers. They are cauchemar. I think of Vazdezenskoya as of the promised land. Shall you not send on the horses in advance?' "'No, they will follow us. But were you going anywhere?' I wanted to go to the Wilsons. I must get a gown. So it is decided that we go to-morrow, is it? she added, in a joyous tone. But suddenly her face changed. Vronsky's valet came in, and asked him to sign a receipt for dispatch from Petersburg. Still there was nothing remarkable in Vronsky's receiving a telegram, but he acted as if he wanted to conceal something from her, and, saying that he would sign it in his library, he turned to her. "'Tomorrow, without fail, I shall have finished everything.' "'From whom is the dispatch?' she asked, not hearing him. "'From Steva,' answered the Count, reluctantly. "'Why didn't you show it to me? What secret can there be between Steva and me?' Vronsky called the valet back, and ordered him to bring in the telegram. "'I did not care to show it, because Steva has a passion for telegraphing. Why need he send me a dispatch to tell me that nothing was decided?' "'About the divorce?' "'Yes.' He maintains that he cannot get a definite answer. Here, see for yourself. Anna took the dispatch with a trembling hand. It read as Vronsky had told her. At the end it said, Little hope, but I shall do everything possible and impossible. I told you yesterday that it was absolutely immaterial to me when I received the divorce, 
or whether I get it at all, said she, flushing, so that it is perfectly useless to hide anything from me. In the same way he can hide from me his correspondence with women, thought she. Yashvin wanted to come this morning, with Vyotov, said Vronsky. It seems that he has been gambling again, and has won from Pyepstov all that he has, and more than he can pay, about sixty thousand roubles. No, said she, vexed because by this change in the conversation he so evidently insinuated that she was vexed. Why do you think that this news interests me so much that you must hide it from me? I told you that I did not want to think about it, and I should wish that you had as little interest in it as I. It interests me because I like clearness. Clearness? But in love, not in mere outside show, said she, getting more and more angry, not at his words, but at the tone of cool calmness in which he spoke. Why do you want a divorce? Vos a moi, always love, thought Vronsky, frowning. You know very well why. It is for your sake, and for the children we may have. There will not be any more children. I am sorry for that. You feel the need of it, because of the children. But don't you have some thought of me, she said, forgetting that he had just said, for your sake, and the children's. The question of the possibility of having children had been long vexatious and trying to her. She took his desire to have children as a proof of indifference toward her beauty. Ugh! I said, for your sake! More than all, for your sake! I am convinced that your irritability comes largely from the uncertainty of your position, he answered, scowling with annoyance. Yes, now he has ceased to pretend, and all his cold hatred of me is plain to be seen, she said to herself, not hearing his words, but gazing with horror at a cold and cruel judge who looked out of his eyes and mocked her. That is not the cause, said she, and I do not understand how my irritability, as you call it, can be caused by the fact that I have come absolutely into your power. How is my position indefinite? It seems to me the contrary. I am sorry that you are not willing to understand, he replied, obstinately determined to express his thought. Its uncertainty comes from this, that you think that I am free. Oh, as far as that goes, you can be perfectly easy, said she, turning from him and beginning to drink her coffee. She took the cup, raising her little finger, and put it to her lips, and as she drank she looked at him, and by the expression of his face saw clearly that her motions and the sounds that she made in swallowing were repulsive to him. "'It is absolutely indifferent to me what your mother thinks, and how she intends to marry you off,' said she, putting down the cup with a trembling hand. "'We will not talk of that.' "'Yes, we will, too.' and I assure you that a heartless woman, whether young or old, your mother or anybody else, does not interest me, and I don't want to know her. Anna, I beg you not to speak disrespectfully of my mother. A woman who has no conception of what the honor and happiness of her son consist in has no heart. I repeat my request that you will not speak disrespectfully of my mother, whom I respect, reiterated the Count, raising his voice and looking severely at Anna. She did not reply, but looked attentively at his face and his hands, and recalled with all its details the scene of the evening before, and his passionate caresses. Just such caresses he has lavished, and will still continue to lavish, on other women, she thought. 
You don't love your mother. Those are simple words. Words. Words, said she, looking at him with eyes full of hatred. If that is the case, it is necessary. It is necessary to decide, and I have decided, said she, and was preparing to leave the room, when the door opened and Yashvin entered. She stopped immediately and bade him good morning. Why, when her soul was full of bitterness, when she felt that she was at the turning point of her life, which might take a terrible direction, why, at this moment, she had to dissimulate before a stranger, who sooner or later would know all, she could not tell, but, calming the inner tumult of her feelings, she sat down again and began to talk with the guest. "'Well, how are your affairs? Have they paid you your debt?' she asked. "'No, not yet. Probably I shall not get it all. And I've got to leave Wednesday,' said Yashvin, awkwardly, glancing at Vronsky, and evidently suspecting that a quarrel was in progress. "'When do you leave?' A day after tomorrow, I think, said Vronsky. You have taken long to make up your minds. But now it is all decided, said Anna, looking straight into Vronsky's eyes with a look that told him how impossible it was to think of reconciliation. Didn't you feel sorry for that unlucky Piepstov? asked Anna, addressing Yashvin. I have never asked myself whether I pitied a man or not, Anna Arkadyevna. My whole fortune is here, said he, pointing to his pocket. Now I am a rich man, but I may come out of the club this evening a beggar. Whoever plays with me would gladly leave me without a shirt, and I him. Well, we engage in war, and that makes the fun. Well, but if you were married, how would it be for your wife? Yashvin laughed. But I am not married, and I don't expect to marry. But how about Helsingfors? suggested Vronsky joining in the conversation and looking at Anna's smiling face. But as she met his glance her face suddenly amassed a set and cold expression, as much as to say to him, I have not forgotten. It's still the same. And haven't you ever been in love? she asked of Yashvin. Oh, Lord, plenty of times. Only remember, one may sit down to cards, but must be able to get up when the time comes for a rendezvous. But I interest myself in love affairs in such a way that I need not be late to play my hand in the evening, and so I always arrange matters. You misunderstand. I did not ask about that, but about actual—she wanted to say, Helsingfors, but she did not like to use a word which Vronsky had just spoken. Vyatov came at this moment to see about a horse which he had bought, and Anna got up and left the room. Before he left the house, Vronsky went to her room— she pretended to look for something on the table, but then, being ashamed of this dissimulation, she looked him straight in the face. She asked him coolly in French, "'What do you want?' "'The certificate for Gambetta. I've sold him,' answered Vronsky, in a tone which said louder than words, "'I have not time for explanations, nor would they lead to anything.' "'I'm not to blame,' thought he, "'if she wants to punish herself. Tant pis pour elle.' However, as he left the room he thought she said something to him, and his heart was suddenly touched with compassion for her. "'What is it, Anna?' "'I said nothing,' she answered coldly and calmly. "'Nothing. Tant pis,' said he to himself. On his way out, as he passed a mirror, he caught sight in it of her pale face and trembling lips. He was tempted to go back and say some comforting words to her, but he was already too far on his way." 
He passed the entire day outside the house, and when he came home the maid informed him that Anna Arkadyevna had a headache and begged him not to disturb her. End of chapter 25part seven chapter twenty six of anna karenina by leo tolstoy translated by nathan haskell doyle this slipper-box recording is in the public domain read by marianne spiegel never before had they let the day end with a quarrel unsettled this was the first time this was not a mere quarrel it was evidently the avowal of permanent coldness how was it possible for him to look at her as he had done when he came into her room after his document how could he look at her and see that her heart was full of despair and then go out with a calm indifferent face he had not only grown cold to her but he hated her because he loved some other woman this was clear and as she recalled all the cruel words which he had said to her Anna began to imagine also the words which she was certain he would like to say to her, and might say, and she grew more and more irritated. "'I will not keep you,' she imagined him saying. "'You may go wherever you please. As you don't care to be divorced from your husband, you probably intend to go back to him. If you want money, I will give it to you. How many roubles do you want?' All these insulting words, which the cruel man might say, were said merely in her imagination, but she could not forgive him any more than if he had really said them. But did he not swear to me only yesterday that he loved me? Is he not a sincere and honest man? she said to herself a moment afterward. Have I not been in despair several times before, all for nothing? She passed the entire day, except two hours during which she made a visit to her protégés, the Wilsons, in alternate doubt and hope. Was all at an end? was there any chance of a reconciliation? Should she leave him then and there, or should she wait and see him once again? She waited for him all day. And in the evening she went to her room, telling Anushka to say that she had a headache. If he comes in spite of that, it will show that he loves me still. If not, it is over, and I shall make up my mind what there is for me to do. Late in the evening she heard his carriage-wheels on the pavement, his ring, and his steps, and his colloquy with the maid. He believed what he was told, he did not care to make further inquiries, and went to his room. Evidently all was at an end, and death, as the only means of establishing a love for her in his heart, of punishing him, and of winning the victory in the struggle which the evil spirit that had possession of her soul was waging with him, clearly vividly presented itself before her now everything was a matter of indifference whether they went to the country or not whether she procured the divorce or not it was unnecessary the one essential thing was to punish him when she poured out her usual dose of opium and it came over her that if she swallowed all that was in the vial she would die it seemed so easy and simple that she felt a real joy in imagining how he would mourn repent and love her when it was too late. She lay on her bed with open eyes, and watched the dying candlelight on the moulded cornice of the ceiling mingle with the shadows of the screen which divided the room. She vividly pictured to herself how he would think, when she was no more, when she was only a memory. "'How could I speak to her such cruel words?' he would say to himself. "'How could I leave her without saying anything at all? 
and now she is no more. She has left us for ever. She is there. Suddenly the shadow of the screen seemed to waver and cover the whole cornice, the whole ceiling. Other shadows from the other sides joined in with it. For an instant they seemed to be running, then with new rapidity they trembled, melted together, and all became dark. Death, thought she, and such a great terror seized upon her that for a long time she did not know where she was, and it was long before her trembling hands could find the matches in order to light another candle in place of the one that had burned down and gone out. No, no, anything, only to live. I love him, and he loves me. These dreadful days will go by, she said to herself, feeling the tears of joy poured down her cheeks at her return to life, and to escape her terror she fled to Vronsky's library. He was in his library, soundly sleeping. She went to him, and, holding the candle above his face, looked at him a long time. Now, as he slept, she felt such love for him, that at the sight of him she could not refrain from tears of tenderness. But she knew that, if he woke, he would look at her with a cold, self-justifying look, and that before she spoke a word of her love, she would not be able to resist the temptation of proving to him how wrong he was. Without waking him, she went back to her room, and after a second dose of opium, she fell into a heavy sleep, which lasted till morning, and all the time she was conscious of herself. Toward morning she had the frightful nightmare, which she had experienced several times even before her liaison with Vronsky. She saw a little old man, with unkept beard, doing something, bending over a gourd, and muttering unintelligible French words, and— as always when she had this nightmare, and therein lay the horror of the dream, she felt that the little old man paid no heed to her, but did this horrible something in the gourd over her head. She awoke in a cold perspiration. When she got up, the events of the day before seemed enveloped in mist. There was a quarrel. It has happened several times before. I said I had a headache, and he didn't come to see me. That is all. "'Tomorrow we shall go away. "'I must see him, and get ready for our departure,' she said to herself, and knowing that he was in his library, she started to go to him. But, in crossing the drawing-room, her attention was arrested by the sound of a carriage stopping, and she looked out of the window and saw a carriage, from the window of which a young girl in a light hat was putting out her hand and giving orders to the footman, who was at the doorbell. After a colloquy in the vestibule, someone came upstairs, and Anna heard Vronsky's steps in the room next to the drawing-room. Then he ran swiftly downstairs. Anna looked out again, and saw him go to the doorsteps, bareheaded, and approach the carriage. The young girl in the lilac-colored hat handed him a package. Vronsky smiled as he spoke to her. The carriage drove away, and Vronsky came quickly upstairs again. The mist, which enwrapped everything in Anna's soul, suddenly cleared away. The feelings of the day before tore her anguished heart more cruelly than ever. She now could not understand how she could have so far debased herself as to stay a single day under his roof. She went to his library, to acquaint him with the resolution that she had taken. "'The Princess Sorokin and her daughter have brought me the money and the papers from Maman. I could not get them yesterday. How is your headache? Better?' he said quietly seeming not to notice the gloomy and solemn expression of Anna's face. She did not reply, but, standing in the middle of the room, 
she looked fixedly at him. He glanced at her for an instant, his brows contracted, and he continued to read his letter. Without speaking, Anna turned slowly about, and left the room. He might yet detain her, but she had reached the door. He said not a word. The only sound heard was the rustling of the sheet of paper. "'Oh, by the way,' he exclaimed, just as she was on the threshold, "'do we really go to-morrow?' "'You, but not I,' answered she, turning round on him. "'Anna, it is impossible to live this way.' "'You, not I,' she repeated. "'It's becoming intolerable.' "'You, you will be sorry for this.' said she, and she went out. Frightened at the despairing tone with which she spoke these last words, he sprang up and started to follow her. But, on reflection, he seated himself again, and, firmly clenching his teeth, he frowned. That unbecoming threat, as he termed it, irritated him. I have tried every means, he said to himself. The only thing left is to pay no attention. And he made up his mind to go to the city and to his mother's again, to have her sign a deed. Anna heard the sound of his steps in his library and the dining-room. He stopped at the drawing-room. But he did not come to her. He only gave some directions about sending the stallion to Vyotov. Then she heard the calash drive to the entrance. A door opened, and Vronsky went out. Then he came back into the vestibule again, and someone ran upstairs. It was his valet, who was sent to get a pair of forgotten gloves. She went to the window, and saw Vronsky take his gloves, then touch the coachman's back, and say some words to him. And then, without glancing at the window, he sat down as usual, in the carriage, crossing one leg over the other, and, putting on the gloves, he turned the corner, and disappeared from Anna's sight. End of chapter 26Part seven, chapter twenty seven of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel. He is gone. It's all over, said Anna to herself as she stood at the window, and the impression of blackness which she had felt in the night at the dying of the candle, and that of the nightmare blending in one, filled her heart with chill horror. No, I cannot endure this she cried, and crossing the room, she rang the bell violently. She was so afraid to stay alone that, without waiting, she went to meet the servant. Find out where the Count has gone. The man replied that he had gone to the stables. He left word that the carriage would return immediately, if you wished to go out. Very well. Wait. I am going to write a note. Send Mikhail with it to the stables. Have him hurry. She sat down and wrote, I am to blame— "'Come back. We must explain things. For heaven's sake, come. I'm frightened.' She sealed the note, and gave it to the servant, and, in her fear of being alone, she went to the nursery. "'Why, he is not the same as he was. Where are his blue eyes, and his pretty, timid smile?' It was her first thought when she saw the plump and rosy little girl, with her dark curly hair, instead of Sarosa, whom, in the confusion of her thoughts, she had expected to see. The little girl was seated at the table, noisily tapping on it with a glass stopper. She looked unintelligently at her mother with two dark, currant-colored eyes. Answering the English nurse that she was well, and expected to go to the country the next day, 
Anna sat down beside the little girl and began to spin the stopper from the carafe in front of her. The motion of the child's brows and her hearty laugh recalled Vronsky so vividly that Anna, choking down her sobs, rose suddenly and hurried from the room. "'Is it possible that all is over? No, it cannot be,' she thought. "'He will return. But how can he explain that smile of his and his animation after he spoke with her?' But even if he doesn't explain it, I shall believe him. If I do not believe, there is only one thing left, and that I do not want. She looked at her watch. Twelve minutes had gone by. Now he must have received my note, and must come back in ten minutes. And what if he shouldn't come back? No, but that's impossible. He must not find me with red eyes. I'll go and bathe my face. There. There. Have I brushed my hair yet? She could not remember. She put her hands to her head. Yes, I brushed my hair, but I really don't remember when it was. She actually did not believe that her hands told her truly, and she went to the pier-glass to see. Her hair was properly arranged, but she could not remember anything about it. Who is this? she asked herself, as she caught sight of a glowing face and strangely brilliant eyes gazing at her from the mirror. Yes, it is I, and she suddenly seemed to feel his kisses, and she shivered and shrugged her shoulders. Then she put her hand to her lips and kissed it. It must be that I am going out of my mind, and she fled to her room, which Anushka was putting in order. Anushka, said she, as she stood before the maid, not knowing what to say. Will you go to Darya Alexandrovna's, said the maid, as if reading her thoughts. To Darya Alexandrovna's? Yes, I will go there. Fifteen minutes to go, fifteen to come back. He ought to be here, she looked at her watch. Oh, how could he leave me in such a condition? How can he live and not be at peace with me? She went to the window and looked out into the street. Perhaps she had made a mistake in calculating, and she began over again to count the minutes since he left. Just as she was about going to consult the great clock, so as to verify hers, a carriage stopped before the door. It was the Count's calash, but no one came upstairs, and she heard voices in the vestibule. It was the messenger who came back in the calash. She hurried down to him. They were too late for the Count. He has gone to the Nitsagorodsky railway station. "'What is the matter? What is it?' she asked, addressing the ruddy, jolly Mikhail, who handed her back the note. "'Oh, yes, he did not receive it she remembered. "'Go with this note to the Countess Vronsky's, in the country, you understand, and bring an answer back to me immediately.' "'But what shall I do?' she thought. "'Yes, I will go to see Dolly, to be sure, or else I shall go out of my mind. Ah, I might telegraph.' And she wrote the following dispatch. "'I absolutely must speak to you. Come back immediately.' Having sent the telegram, she went and dressed, and then— with her hat on, she again looked at the stout, good-natured Anushka, whose little, gentle grey eyes were full of sympathy. "'Anushka, my dear, what am I to do?' murmured she, dropping into an armchair with a sob. "'You mustn't excite yourself so, Anna Arkadyevna. Go out for a drive. That will divert you. These things will happen,' said the maid. "'Yes, I am going out,' said Anna, collecting her thoughts and rising." If a dispatch comes while I am gone, 
send it to Darya Alexandrovna's, or— No, I will come back. I must keep from thinking. I must do something, and go out, and, above all, get out of this house, thought she, listening with alarm to the wild beating of her heart. She hastened out and got into the calash. Where do you wish to go? asked Pyotr, just before he took his seat on the box. To Znamenko, to the Oblonskys. End of chapter 27part seven chapter twenty eight of anna karenina by leo tolstoy translated by nathan haskell doyle this librivox recording is in the public domain read by marianne spiegel the weather was clear a fine thick rain had fallen all the morning but now it had just cleared off the roofs and the flagstones and harnesses and the metal work of the carriages glittered in the may sunshine it was three o'clock the liveliest time in the streets. Sitting in the corner of the comfortable calash, which swung easily on its elastic springs as it rolled swiftly along, drawn by a pair of greys, Anna, soothed by the monotonous rumble of the wheels and the hurrying impressions that she received in the fresh, pure air, reviewed the events of the past few days, and her situation seemed entirely different from what it had been at home. Now the idea of death did not frighten her so much, and death itself did not seem to her so inevitable. Now she blamed herself for the humiliation to which she had stooped. I begged him to forgive me. I bent before him. I accused myself. Why did I? Can't I live without him? And, leaving this question unanswered, she began to read the signboards mechanically. Contur escalade. Zubnoi vrach. Yes, I will tell Dolly all about it, she does not love Vronsky. It will be hard, shameful, but I will confess everything. She loves me. I will follow her advice. I will not allow him to treat me like a child. Filopov, Kalachki. They say they send those loaves as far as Petersburg. The water at Moscow is so good. Ah, the wells of Muitischensky. And she remembered how long, long ago, when she was seventeen, she had gone with her aunt to the monastery of Triotza. They travelled with horses in those days. Was it really I, with the red hands? How many things which seemed then beautiful and unattainable are worthless to me now! What I was then is past forever beyond recall, and ages could not bring me back. Would I have believed then that I could have fallen into such debasement? How proud and self-satisfied he will be when he reads my note— but I will tell him. How disagreeable this paint smells! Why are they always painting and building? Modui e Uberi, a fashionable dressmaker, she read. A man bowed to her. It was Anushka's husband. Our parasites, as Vronsky says. Ours. Why ours? Ah, oh, if one could tear out the past by the roots. But that's impossible. One can only avoid thinking about it. And I do that. And yet, here she recalled her past with Alexey Alexandrovitch, and how she had driven him out of her memory. Dolly will think that I am leaving the second husband, and that I am, therefore, really bad. Do I want to be good? I cannot. And she felt the tears coming. And, seeing two happy young girls going by, 
she fell to wondering why they were smiling at each other. Probably about love. They don't know how sad and wretched it is. The boulevards and the children. There are three little boys playing horse. Sarosa, my little Sarosa. I shall lose all. I shall never have him again. Well, if he does not come back, all is indeed lost. Perhaps he missed the train and has already reached home. Do I wish to humiliate myself still more? she said, reproaching herself for her weakness. No, I am going to Dolly's. I shall say to her, I am unhappy, I am suffering, I deserve it, but I am so unhappy. Help me. Oh, these horses, this calash. How I hate to use them. They are his. I will never see them again. While thinking over what she should say to Dolly, and deliberately torturing her heart, she reached the house, and went up the steps. "'Is there anyone here?' she asked in the anteroom. "'Katerina Alexandrovna Levina,' answered the servant. "'Kitty! The same Kitty with whom Vronsky was once in love,' thought Anna. "'And he thinks of her with love, and is sorry that he did not marry her, and he thinks of me with hate, and is sorry that he ever met me.' When Anna arrived, the two sisters were talking over the subject of feeding babies. Dolly went alone to the drawing-room to receive the guests that had come to disturb their conversation. "'You haven't gone away yet. I was just going to your house,' said Dolly. "'I have a letter from Steva to-day.' "'We had a dispatch,' answered Anna, glancing round to see if Kitty was coming. "'He writes that he does not understand what Alexey Alexandrovitch requires, but that he will not come away till he has a definite answer.' I thought you had company. May I read the letter? Yes. Kitty, said Dolly, confused. She is in the nursery. You know she has been very ill. I heard so. May I read the letter? Certainly. I'll go and get it. Alexey Alexandrovitch does not refuse. On the contrary, Steva is quite hopeful, said Dolly, stopping at the door. I neither hope nor want anything, said Anna. "'Does Kitty think it humiliating to meet me?' thought Anna, when she was left alone. "'Perhaps she is right. But she who once loved Vronsky has no right to thrust it in my face, even if she is right. I know that a virtuous woman cannot receive me in my present position. I have given up everything for him, and this is my reward. Oh, how I hate him! Why did I come here? I am more wretched here than at home.' She heard the voices of the two sisters in an adjoining room. And what am I to say to Dolly? Delight Kitty with the spectacle of my misery? Submit to her condensation? Never. Even Dolly wouldn't understand. I will not say anything to her. All I should want to see Kitty for would be to show her that I am indifferent, that I scorn every one and everything. Dolly came in with the letter. Anna silently looked it through and returned it. I knew all that, said she, but it doesn't interest me at all. Now, why not? I have good hopes, said Dolly, looking critically at Anna. She had never seen her in such a strange state of irritation. When do you go away? Anna half closed her eyes, and looked before her without answering. Is Kitty afraid of me? she asked, after a moment, glancing toward the door, with heightened color. Oh, what nonsense! She is nursing the baby. It does not go very well yet. I have been giving her some advice. She will be delighted, and is coming directly, answered Dolly, awkwardly, not knowing how to tell a fib. Oh, there she is now, 
When Kitty heard that Anna was there, she had not wished to appear, but Dolly had persuaded her. Controlling her repugnance, she went to the parlor, and, blushing as she approached Anna, she held out her hand. "'I am very glad,' she said in a trembling voice. Kitty was confused by the struggle between her dislike of this wicked woman and her desire to be polite to her, but, as soon as she saw Anna's beautiful, attractive face, all her unfriendliness vanished. "'I should not have been surprised if you had refused to see me. I am used to everything,' said Anna. "'You have been very ill. Yes, you have changed.' Kitty felt that Anna looked at her with dislike, and she attributed her unfriendliness to the awkward position in which she stood in regard to herself, having once been her special favorite. Her heart was filled with compassion. They talked of Kitty's illness, about her baby, and of Steva, but evidently nothing interested Anna. "'I came to bid you good-bye,' she said to Dolly, as she rose. "'When do you go?' But without answering her, Anna turned to Kitty. "'Well, I am very glad to have seen you again,' said she, with a smile. "'I have heard so much about you from everyone, and especially from your husband. He came to see me, and I liked him very much,' she added, with a wicked emphasis. "'Where is he?' "'He has gone to the country,' answered Kitty, blushing. "'Give my love to him. Now don't forget.' "'I will do it, certainly,' said Kitty, simply, with a compassionate look. "'So, Priyashie, Dolly, good-bye,' said Anna, kissing her, and shaking hands with Kitty, she hastened away. "'She is as fascinating as ever,' remarked Kitty to her sister, when Dolly rejoined Kitty. "'And how beautiful she is! But there is something very painful about her, terribly painful.' She doesn't seem to be in her usual state today. I thought she came near to bursting into tears when I accompanied her into the anteroom. End of chapter 28「Part seven, Chapter twenty nine of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel. Anna took her seat in her carriage in an even unhappier state of mind than she had been when she left her house. In addition to her former sufferings, she now felt the humiliation and sense of moral degeneracy which her meeting with Kitty had clearly made evident. "'Where do you wish to go now? Home?' asked Piotr. "'Yes, home,' she replied, not thinking at all where she was going. "'They looked on me as some strange, incomprehensible curiosity.' "'What can that man be saying so eagerly to the other?' she thought, seeing two passers-by talking together. "'Is it possible to say what one really feels? I wanted to confess to Dolly, and I am glad that I kept still. How she would have rejoiced at my unhappiness! She would have tried to hide it, but at heart she would have been glad. She would have thought it just that I should be punished for that happiness which she begrudged me, and Kitty would have been still more pleased.' how I read her through and through. She knows her husband liked me uncommonly well, and she is jealous and hates me, and, what's more, she despises me. In her eyes I am an immoral woman. If I had been an immoral woman, I might have made him fall in love with me, if I had wanted to. I confess I thought of it. There goes a man who is delighted with his own looks, she said to herself, as a tall, florid man went by, and— mistaking her for an acquaintance, lifted his shiny hat from his shiny bald head 
and instantly recognized his mistake. He thought he knew me. He knows me quite as well as anyone in the world knows me. I don't know myself. I only know my appetites, as the French say. They covet some of that bad ice-cream, she said to herself, as she watched two little street children standing in front of a vendor who had just set down from his head a tub of ice-cream and was wiping his face with the corner of his coat. We all want our sweet delicacies. If not sugar-plums, then bad ice-creams, and just like Kitty, who, not catching Vronsky, took leaven. She envies me. She hates me. And we all hate one another. I, Kitty, and Kitty, me. That is a fact. Tinkin coffier. Je m'a fait coffier par Tinkin. I will tell him this nonsense when he comes, thought she, and smiled, and then instantly remembered that there was no one now to whom she could tell amusing things. There is nothing amusing, nothing gay. It is all disgusting. The vesper bell is ringing, and the storekeeper is crossing himself so quickly that no one would think he was afraid of losing the chance. Why these churches? These bells? These lies? Just to hide the fact that we all hate one another, like those Izvozchiks who are swearing at each other so angrily. Yashvin was right when he said, He is after my shirt, and I am after his. That is a fact. She was so engrossed by these thoughts that she forgot her grief for a while, and was surprised when the carriage stopped in front of her house. The sight of the Swiss, coming to meet her, reminded her that she had sent a letter and a telegram. "'Is there an answer yet?' "'I will go and see,' said the Swiss, and, looking on the secretary, he came back in a moment with a telegram in a thin, square envelope. Anna read, "'I cannot be back before ten o'clock. Vronsky.' "'And has the messenger come back?' "'Not yet,' replied the Swiss. "'Ah, if that is so, then I know what I must do.' and, feeling a vague sense of anger and a desire for vengeance arising in her soul, she ran upstairs. "'I myself will go and find him,' thought she. "'Before I go away for ever, I will tell him all. I never hated anyone as I hate this man.' And when she caught sight of Vronsky's hat hanging on the peg, she shivered with aversion. She did not reflect that the dispatch was an answer to her telegram, and that he could not as yet have received her note. She imagined him now chatting gaily with his mother and the Princess Sorokin, without a thought of her suffering. "'Yes, I must go as quickly as possible,' she said, not knowing at all whither she should go. She felt that she must fly from the thoughts that oppressed her in this terrible house. The servants, the walls, the furniture, everything about it, filled her with disgust and pain, and crushed her with a terrible weight. "'Yes,' I must go to the railway station, and if not there, then somewhere else, to punish him. She looked at the timetable in the newspaper. The evening train went at two minutes past eight. Yes, I shall have plenty of time. She ordered the two other horses to be harnessed, and she had transferred from her trunk to her travelling bag things enough to last for several days. She knew that she should never come back again. She revolved a thousand plans in her head and determined that when she had done what she had in mind to do, either at the Countess's country seat or at the station, she would go to the first city on the Nizhny Novgorod Railway and stay there. Dinner was on the table. She went to it, smelt the bread and cheese, and persuading herself that the odor of the victuals was repugnant to her, 
she ordered the carriage again and went out. The house was already casting a shadow across the wide street, but the sky was clear and it was warm in the sun. Anushka, who brought her things, and Pyotr, who carried them to the carriage, and the coachman, who was evidently angry, all were disagreeable to her, and vexed her with their words and motions. "'I do not need you, Pyotr.' "'Who will get your ticket?' "'Well, go if you wish. It makes no difference to me,' she said pettishly. Pyotr nimbly mounted the box, and, folding his arms, ordered the coachman to drive to the station. End of chapter 29part seven chapter thirty of anna karenina by leo tolstoy translated by nathan haskell doyle this librivox recording is in the public domain read by marianne spiegel now i am myself again now i remember it all said anna to herself as soon as the calash started and rocking a little rattled along over the cobblestones of the pavement and once more her impressions began to go whirling through her mind yes what was that good thing that I was thinking about last? Tweetkin, the coiffure? Oh, no, not that. Oh, yes, what Yashvin said about the struggle for existence, and hatred, the only thing that unites men. No, we go at haphazard. She saw in a carriage drawn by four horses a party of merrymakers who had evidently come to the city for a pleasure trip and the dog which you take with you does not help you at all. You can't get out of yourself. Glancing in the direction where Pyotr was turning, she saw a working man, almost dead drunk, who, with a flopping head, was being led by a policeman. She added, That man's way is quicker. Count Vronsky and I did not reach this pleasure, though we expected much. And now for the first time Anna turned this bright light, all revealing, upon her relations with the Count, Hitherto she had steadfastly refused to do so. What did he seek in me? Her satisfaction for his vanity, rather than for his love. She remembered Vronsky's words, and the expression of his face, which reminded her of a submissive dog, when they first met and loved. Everything seemed a confirmation of this thought. Yes, he cared for the triumph of success above everything. Of course, he loved me but chiefly from vanity. Now that he is not proud of me any more, it is over. He is ashamed of me. He has taken from me all that he could take, and now I am of no use to him. I weigh upon him, and he does not want to be in dishonorable relationship with me. He said, yesterday, he wanted the divorce and to marry me so as to burn his ships. Perhaps he loves me still, but how— the zest is gone, she said in English. That man likes to show off, and he is mighty proud of himself, she added, as she looked at a ruddy-faced man riding by on a hired horse. There is nothing about me any longer to his taste. If I leave him, he will rejoice in the bottom of his heart. This was not mere hypothesis. She saw this clearly, in the penetrating light which now revealed to her the meaning of life and of her false relations. My love has been growing more and more passionate and selfish. His has been growing fainter and fainter. That is why we cannot get on together, she went on thinking. There can't be any help for it. He is all in all to me. 
I struggle to draw him closer and closer to me, and he wants to fly from me. Up to the time of our union, we flew to meet each other, but now we move irresistibly apart. This cannot be altered. He accuses me of being absurdly jealous, and I am. I confess that I am absurdly jealous, and yet I am not either. I am not jealous, but my love is no longer satisfied. But— she opened her mouth to speak, and, in the excitement caused by the stress of her thoughts, she changed her place in the carriage. If I could only be something else than a passionate mistress, but I cannot, and I do not wish to be, and by this very wish I awake his dislike of me, while he stirs up all my evil passions, and this cannot be otherwise. Don't I know that he would not deceive me, that he is no longer in love with Kitty, that he has no intention of marrying Sorokina. I know it well, but it is none the easier for me. If now that he no longer loves me, he is kind, affectionate to me, merely from a sense of duty, but cannot be what I must have, then what would be a thousand times worse than to have him angry with me? That would be... Hell, and so it is. He has long ceased to love me. When love ceases, hate begins. I don't know these streets at all. What hosts of houses! In them, people, people, and no end of them, and they all hate one another. Well, let me think what could happen to me now that would give me happiness again. Suppose that Alexey Alexandrovitch should consent to the divorce, and would give me back Sorosa, and that I should marry Vronsky. And as she thought of Alexey Alexandrovitch, Anna could see him with extraordinary vividness before her, as if alive, with his dull, lifeless, faded eyes, his white, blue-veined hands, and his cracking joints, and the intonations of his voice, and, as she recalled their relation to each other, which had been called love, she shuddered with aversion. Well, suppose I got the divorce, and were married to Vronsky, would not Kitty still look at me as she looked at me to-day? She certainly would. Would not Sir Rosa ask and wonder why I had two husbands? But between me and Vronsky, what new feeling could I imagine? Is it possible that our relations might be, if not pleasanter, at least not so tormenting as they are now? No, and no, she replied without the least hesitation. Impossible. We are growing apart and I make him unhappy. He makes me unhappy, and I cannot change him. Every means has been tried. The screw has been turned for the last time. Now there's a beggar with a child. She thinks she inspires pity. Were we not thrown into the world to hate one another, and to torment ourselves and everybody else? Here come the schoolboys out to play. Sorosa? It reminded her of her son. I used to think that I loved him, and I was touched by his gentleness. I have lived without him. I have given him up for my love, and was not sorry for the change, as long as I was contented with him whom I loved. And she remembered with disgust what she called that love, and the clearness with which she now saw her own life, as well as the lives of others, delighted her. Thus am I, and Pyotr, and the coachman, Fyodor, and that merchant— and all people from here to the Volga, wherever these remarks are applicable, 
and everywhere and always, she thought, as the carriage stopped in front of the low-roofed station of the Nizhny Novgorod Railway, and the porters came hurrying out to meet her. "'Shall I book you for Obirolavka? asked Pyotr. She had entirely forgotten why she had come, and only by a great effort could she understand what he meant. "'Yes,' said she, handing him her purse, and, taking her little red bag, she got out of the carriage. As she entered the waiting-room for the first-class passengers with the throng, she reviewed all the details of her situation, and the plans between which she was halting. And again hope and despair in alteration irritated the wounds in her tortured, cruelly palpitating heart. As she sat on the stelliform divan waiting for the train, she looked with aversion on the people going and coming. They were all her enemies. And thought now of how, when she reached the station, she would write to him, and what she would write, and then how at this very moment he, not thinking of her suffering, was complaining to his mother of his position, and how she would go to his room, and what she would say to him. The thought that she might yet live happily crossed her brain, and how hard it was to love and hate him at the same time, and, above all, how frightfully her heart was beating. End of chapter 30「Part seven, chapter thirty one of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by Marianne Spiegel. A bell sounded, and some impudent young men, ugly and vulgar, and yet mindful of the impression that they produced, hurried before her. Then Pyotr, in his livery and top-boots, with his dull, good-natured face, crossed the waiting-room, and came up to escort her to the carriage. The noisy men about the door stopped talking while she passed out on the platform. Then one of them whispered to his neighbor some remark, which was apparently impudent. Anna mounted the high steps and sat down alone in the compartment on the dirty sofa, which had once been white, and laid her bag beside her on the springy seat. Pyotr, at the window, raised his gold-laced hat, with an inane smile, for a farewell, and departed. The saucy conductor shut the door. A woman, deformed and ridiculously dressed up, followed by a little girl laughing affectedly, passed below the carriage window. Anna looked at her with disgust. "'Katerina Andreyevna has everything, ma tante!' screamed the little girl. "'That child, even she is grotesque and makes grimaces,' thought Anna, and she seated herself at the opposite window of the empty apartment to avoid seeing the people." A dirty hunchback muzik passed close to the window, and examined the car-wheels. He wore a cap, from beneath which could be seen tufts of dishevelled hair. "'There is something familiar about that humpbacked muzik,' thought Anna. And suddenly she remembered her nightmare, and drew back, trembling with fright, toward the carriage-door, which the conductor was just opening to admit a lady and a gentleman. "'Do you want to get out?' Anna did not answer and under her veil the conductor and the passenger did not see the horror in her face. She returned to her corner and sat down again. The couple took seats opposite her, and cast stealthy but curious glances at her gown. The husband and wife were obnoxious to her. The husband asked her if she objected to smoking, evidently not for the sake of smoking, but as an excuse for entering into conversation with her. Having obtained her permission, he remarked to his wife in French, 
that he felt even more inclined to talk than to smoke. They exchanged stupid remarks, with the hope of attracting Anna's attention. Anna clearly saw how they bored each other, how they hated each other. It was impossible not to hate such painful monstrosities. The second gong sounded, and was followed by the rumble of baggage, noise, shouts, laughter. Anna saw so clearly that there was nothing to rejoice at, that this laughter roused her indignation, and she longed to stop her ears so as not to hear it. At last the third signal was given, the locomotive whistled, there was a sound of escaping steam, the train started, and the gentleman crossed himself. It would be interesting to ask him what he meant by that, thought Anna, looking at him angrily. Then she looked past the woman's head, out of the car window, at the people apparently moving backward, even while they were standing and walking on the platform. The carriage in which Anna sat moved past the stone walls of the station, the switches, the other carriages. The wheels with a ringing sound moved more easily and smoothly over the rails. The rays of the setting sun slanted into the car window, and a light breeze played through the slats of the blinds in the carriages, and Anna forgot her neighbors, breathed in the fresh air, and took up again the course of her thoughts. There, what was I thinking about? Oh, yes, I was just deciding that I could not imagine any situation in which my life could be anything but one long misery. We are all dedicated to unhappiness. We all know it, and only seek for ways to deceive ourselves. But when we see truth, what is to be done? Reason was given to man that he might avoid what annoys him, remarked the woman, in French, apparently delighted with her sentence, and putting out her tongue. The words fitted in with Anna's thought. To avoid what annoys him, she repeated, and a glance at the red-faced man, and his thin companion, showed her that the woman looked on herself as a misunderstood creature, and that her stout husband did not contradict this opinion, and took advantage of it to deceive her. Anna, as it were, read their history, and looked into the most secret depths of their hearts, but it was not interesting, and she went on with her reflections. Yes, it annoys me very much, and reason was given to avoid it. Therefore it must be done. Why not extinguish the light when it shines on things disgusting to see? But how? Why does the conductor keep hurrying through the car? Why do the young people in this carriage scream so loud? Why do they speak? What are they laughing at? It is all false, all a lie, all deception, all vanity and vexation. When the train reached the station, Anna went out with the other passengers, and, with the idea of avoiding too rude a contact with the bustling crowd, she hesitated on the platform, trying to recollect why she had come, and what she meant to do. All that seemed to her possible before to do, now seemed to her difficult to execute, especially amid this noisy crowd which would not leave her in peace. Now the porters came to her, to offer her their services. Now some young men, clattering with their heels up and down the platform, and talking loud, observed her curiously, and now hurrying passengers pushed her aside. Finally, remembering that she was proposing to go farther if there was no answer from Vronsky, she stopped an official, and asked him if a coachman had been there with a letter for Count Vronsky. A Count Vronsky? Just now someone was here. Princess Sorokin and her daughter met him. What kind of a looking man is this coachman? 
Even while she was talking with the official, the coachman, Mikhail, rosy and gay in his elegant blue livery and watch-chain, immensely proud that he had fulfilled his commission so well, came to her and handed her a note. Anna broke the seal, and her heart stood still, even before she had read the carelessly written lines. I am very sorry that your note did not find me in Moscow. I shall return at ten o'clock. Yes, that is what I expected, she said to herself, with an angry grimace. Very good. You may go home, she said to Mikhail. She spoke the words slowly and gently, because the tumultuous beating of her heart almost prevented her from breathing. No, I will not let you make me suffer so, thought she, addressing, with a threat, neither Vronsky nor her own self, so much as the thought that was torturing her. And she moved along the platform, past the station. Two chambermaids walking on the platform turned to look at her, and made audible remarks about her toilet. She has genuine lace, they said. The young men would not leave her in peace. They stared at her, and passed her again and again, joking and talking with loud voices. The station-master came to her and asked if she was going to take the train. A lad selling kvass did not take his eyes from her. Vous et moi, where shall I go? she said to herself, as she walked farther and farther along the platform. When she reached the end of it she stopped. Some women and children, who had come to the station to meet a man in spectacles, were talking and laughing. They too stopped talking, and turned to see Anna pass by. She hastened her steps, and reached the very limit of the platform. A freight train was coming. The platform shook, and made her feel as if she were on a moving train. Suddenly she remembered the man who was run over on the day when she met Vronsky for the first time. And she knew what was left for her to do. With light and swift steps she descended the stairway which led from the water-tank at the end of the platform down to the rails, and stood very near the train, which was slowly passing by. She looked under the cars, at the chains and the brake, and at the high iron wheels of the first car, and she tried to estimate with her eye the distance between the fore and the back wheels, and the moment when the middle would be in front of her. There, she said, looking at the shadow of the car thrown up on the black coal dust which covered the sleepers. There, in the center, he will be punished, and I shall be delivered from it all, and from myself. She was going to throw herself under the first car as its center came opposite where she stood. Her little red travelling-bag caused her to lose the moment. She could not detach it from her arm. She awaited the second. A feeling like that she had experienced once, just before taking a dive in the river, came over her, and she made the sign of the cross. This familiar gesture called back to her soul a whole series of memories of her youth and childhood, and suddenly the darkness which hid everything from her was torn asunder. Life, with its elusive joys, glowed for an instant before her. But she did not take her eyes from the car, and when the center, between the two wheels, appeared, she threw away her red bag, drawing her head between her shoulders, and, with outstretched hands, threw herself on her knees under the car. For a second she was horror-struck at what she was doing. "'Where am I? What am I doing? Why?' She tried to get up, to draw back, but something monstrous, inflexible, struck her head and threw her on her back. "'Lord, forgive me all,' she murmured, feeling the struggle to be in vain. 
a little music was working on the railroad, mumbling in his beard. And the candle, by which she had read the book that was filled with fears, with deceptions, with anguish, and with evil, flared up with greater brightness than she had ever known, revealing to her all that was before in darkness, then flickered, grew faint, and went out for ever. End of chapter 31 and end of part 7 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy Translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Part 8, Chapter 1 of Anna Karenina. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Marianne Spiegel. Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle, Part 8, Chapter 1. Almost two months had passed by. Half the hot summer was gone, but Sergey Ivanovitch had only just made up his mind to leave Moscow. An important event for him had just occurred. The year before he had finished his book entitled An Essay on the Principles and Forms of Government in Europe and in Russia, the fruit of six years of labor. The introduction, as well as some fragments from the book, had already appeared in the reviews, and certain parts had been read by the author to the people of his circle, so that the ideas contained in this treatise could not be a perfect novelty for the public. But nevertheless Sergey Ivanovitch expected that the book on its appearance would attract serious attention, and produce, if not a revolution in science, at least a powerful sensation in the learned world. This book, after careful revision, had been published the year before, and distributed among the booksellers. Though Sergey Ivanovitch answered reluctantly, and with pretended indifference, the questions of his friends who asked how the book was going, and though he refrained from inquiring of the booksellers how it was selling, nevertheless he followed eagerly and with strained attention every sign of the impression which his book was producing on society and literature. But a week passed a second, a third, and there was not a sign of any impression. His friends, specialists and savants, evidently out of politeness, spoke to him about it. But the rest of his acquaintances, not being interested in a book of scientific purport, did not speak about it at all. Society, also, which just at that time was preoccupied with entirely different matters, showed utter unconcern. In literary circles, also, during the lapse of a month, there was not a word about his book. Sergey Ivanovitch carefully calculated the time necessary for preparing critical reviews, but months passed by, and there also was absolute silence. Only in the Northern Beetle, in a facetious frilleton regarding the singer Drabanti, who had lost his voice, a few scornful words were said in regard to Koznuyshev's book, showing that it had already been criticized by all and was given over to universal ridicule. At length, after three months, 
a critical article appeared in a journal of importance. Sergey Ivanovitch knew who the author was. He had met him once at Golubtsov's. He was a very young and feeble critic, very clever as a writer, but perfectly uneducated, and cowardly in his private relations. Notwithstanding Sergey Ivanovitch's contempt of the author, he began to read the article with extraordinary interest. It proved to be abominable. Evidently, the critic understood the whole book just exactly as he should not have understood it, but he had so cleverly put together a section of extracts that for those who had not read the book, and apparently almost no one had read it, it was perfectly clear that the entire book, in spite of its high pretensions, was nothing but a tissue of pompous phrases, and these not always intelligible, as the critic's frequent interrogation points testified, and that the author of the work was a perfect ignoramus, and it was done in such a witty way that Sergey Ivanovitch himself could not deny the wit of it, but, after all, it was abominable. Sergey Ivanovitch, in spite of the unusual conscientiousness with which he examined into the justice of these remarks, did not for a moment think of answering the ridiculous errors and blunders, but he could not help instantly remembering all the least details of his meeting and conversation with the author of the article. "'Did I say anything to affront him?' said Sergey Ivanovitch. And remembering how, when he met the young author of the article, he had shown up his ignorance in conversation, he, therefore, understood the animus of the criticism. The appearance of this article was followed by a silence, unbroken by either voice or journal, and Sergey Ivanovitch saw that his six years' labor, into which he had put so much of his heart and soul, had been wasted. And his position was made all the more trying, because, now that his book was off his hands, he had nothing especial to occupy the larger part of his time. He was bright, well-educated, in perfect health, and very active, and he did not know how to employ his industry. Conversations with callers, visits to the club, and the meetings of committees, where there was a chance for him to talk, took some of his time. But he, a man long wanted to life in the city, did not permit himself to talk with every one, as his inexperienced brother did when he was in Moscow, so that he had much leisure and a superfluity of intellectual energy. To his joy, just at this time, which was so trying to him because of the failure of his book, and after his interest in dissenters, American subjects, the famine in Samara, expositions, spiritualism, was exhausted, the Slavic question began to engross public attention, and Sergey Ivanovitch, who had been one of its earliest advocates, gave himself up to it with enthusiasm. Among Sergey Ivanovitch's friends nothing else was thought about, or talked about, except the Serbian war. All the things that lazy people are accustomed to do was done for the help of these brother Slavs. Balls, concerts, dinners, matches, ladies' finery, beer, drinking saloons, everything bore witness of sympathy for the Slavs. With much that was said and written on this subject, Sergey Ivanovitch could not agree. He saw that the Slav question was one of those fashionable movements that always carry people to extremes. He saw that many people, with very petty personal ends in view, took part in it. He recognized that the newspapers made many useless and exaggerated statements, in order to attract attention to themselves and belittle their rivals. He saw that in this common impulse of society, upstarts put themselves forward and outdid one another in making a noise commanders-in-chief without an army, 
ministers without a ministry, journalists without a journal, party leaders without partisans. He saw much that was childish and absurd, but he also saw and admired the enthusiasm which united all classes, and which it was impossible not to share. The massacre of the Serbians, who professed the same faith and spoke almost the same language, aroused sympathy for their sufferings and indignation against their persecutors, and the heroism of the Serbs and Montenegrins, who were fighting for a great cause, aroused a universal desire to help their brethren, not only in word, but in deed. But there was another phenomenon which delighted Sergey Ivanovitch especially. This was the manifestation of public opinion. Society actually spoke out its desires. The national soul received expression, as Sergey Ivanovitch expressed it, and the more he studied this movement as a whole, the more evidently it seemed to him that it was destined to grow to enormous proportions, and to constitute an epoch. He devoted himself to the service of this great cause, and forgot to think about his book. All his time was now so occupied that he could scarcely reply to the letters and demands made upon him. He had worked all the spring and a part of the summer, and only in the month of July could he tear himself away to go to his brother in the country. He went for a fortnight's vacation, and rejoiced to find, even in the depths of the country, in the very holy of holies of the peasantry, the same awakening of the national spirit in which he himself and all the inhabitants of the capital and the large cities of the empire firmly believed. Katavasov seized the opportunity to fulfill a promise he had made to visit Levin, and the two friends left town together. End of chapter 1